Welcome back, Red Spotters! Another show here in the Red Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Alexis Soto, joined by Alexis Moreno. We're now halfway through October. We're in mid-October, and today, in addition to our regular recaps of Andor and House of the Dragon, we have something a bit more seasonal, uh, appropriate for the season, <laughs> a review of Hocus Pocus 2, currently streaming on Disney+. And then also, I guess we have to address the She-Hulk in the room now, don't we? That's today's show here on Red Spotlight number 420. Wow, <laughs> 420. Um, I, uh, I have some exciting news uh, because I, well, I, I say exciting, but then again, the minute I say it and I put it out there, it won't happen. Um, but I am in the midst of trying to get a Halloween special of sorts out for you guys here for, you know, tuning in to our show week in and week out. Last week I had mentioned that, uh, Peter had loaned me his, um, physical media copies of, I think I'm showing Alexis here, of the classic Universal Monsters. And exactly one week later, I have finished all of them. Uh, I kind of like just went through all of them because that, that was those are my weekend plans literally and Technically speaking there are eight movies, but nine of them because Dracula apparently like there's a, a Spanish language version of Dracula that was filmed at the exact same time With the exact same sets just different actors and so that, that's a bit of historical stuff. We'll get into in a minute um, with that movie so nine films technically speaking um and it was a whirlwind of uh, wonderful cinema, if you will. So I am hoping uh, to get Peter uh, wrangled down sometime this month so we can talk about the history of the classic Universal Monsters, which include, and here are all the films that we that uh, I watched. Dracula, uh, Dracula, the Spanish language version, um, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, uh, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Wolfman, the Phantom of the Opera, or I should say Phantom of the Opera, uh, the 1954, I'm 52 version, I think, and then also Creature from the Black Lagoon. So those are all the classic monsters, and hopefully we can talk about them as this week's Halloween special. Um, in addition to all of that, I also wanted to give people something of a a uh, brief update as far as like what the coverage is going to entail for the month and a half going forward as people should know there are a lot of heavy hitters coming our way pretty soon in terms mm -hmm. of i mean we already we're trying to keep up with tv and movies I know. but a lot of movies are hitting us in november the least of which of course includes black panther wakanda forever uh, Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, the next Disney animated feature, Strange World, of course, the feature uh, follow-up to Knives Out, Glass Onion uh, from Ryan Johnson. All of that is coming just in November. So again, I mean, we try to do one movie and one new movie a week anyway. And so that's a lot um, coming. And of course, that doesn't even include any of the smaller um, fare that would be, uh, you know, right now, this is the time of year where I get so jealous of like other particular markets because so um, many – oh, the ones that are in those uh, particular markets that I referred to are getting a lot of the Oscar, uh, you know, a lot of the prestige movies, quote-unquote prestige films, the ones that uh, are, um, are expected to be um, – highly talked about when it comes to Oscar season. So previously we talked about like Tar, 
that's uh, playing in theaters. No one near me, of course, but that's also <laughs> play. The oh man, uh, the other movie that is opening this week, I believe, uh, and that is um, by Martin McDonough. Uh, who previously directed uh, In Bruges and also, I believe, um, Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, has The Banshees of Insurin, uh, which stars Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, and Barry Keown, and other people, of course, or in that film that's also uh, playing somewhere <laughs> in the country this weekend. <laughs> Anywhere close to me? No. Um, obviously not. So, Yeah. And as far as, like, where we stand, nothing has really changed as far as, like, who the two movies people feel are, like, ahead in the race for Best Picture, Everything Everywhere and Fablemans. But there is a bit of an interesting update when it comes to the Best Actress race. And it gets my nerves just flared up because, like, of all the years, uh, you know, of course, all of us, a lot of us here on this network really want Michelle Yeoh to win uh, for Everything Everywhere. However, it seemingly uh, is going to be somewhat of a competitive year, even more more than most <laughs> uh, years like. Uh, over the weekend, I believe it was Danielle Deadweiler who stars in a movie called Till. Um, it is about the mother of Emmett Till. Uh, this happened in the during the peak of the civil rights movement, and it has been received as most biopics of that flavor are received, the film, everyone agrees, is pretty okay, pretty standard, pretty all right. But it's that performance that apparently people are like so, you know, fallen in love with. And you keep hearing the, the thing you keep hearing is, oh, it made me cry. And of mm-hmm. course, that's why, that's why Coda won Best Picture last year of all the movies that came out. So that's annoying. <laughs> in addition to, Uh, Another film that I believe was just screened either today or yesterday, and that is She Said. That's the name of the film. And that uh, is about the two New York Times reporters that blew open the Harvey Weinstein scandal uh, a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the trailer, it very much feels like Spotlight, which, of course, we all know Spotlight won, deservedly so, Best Picture a few years back. And it turns out that might be doing... Uh, pretty well this year. So those are some updates as to, um, you know, what other contenders there would be like. But, you know, I I do want to take also this time to, you know, mention, of course, and I, I would hope that this wasn't just talk and it somehow manifests into something serious, at least, at the very least, some kind of nomination. But over this weekend was pretty momentous for one of our favorite directors. Um, I feel we all are, you know, feel very strongly about him, particularly here on this uh, network, and that is Guillermo del Toro. Um, and he had, of course, we've been talking about his Pinocchio movie for weeks and weeks and weeks now. The trailer was amazing. The poster was amazing. And guess what? It debuted finally this past weekend. And honestly, some of the reactions have been, I mean, just through the roof. Through the roof. I mean, you wouldn't believe <laughs> some of the things. It's just, it, it's it's beautiful. Um, and I want to read some of them. And one that kind of like was pegging it like, well, it's kind of a game changer and it may even crack best picture. A best picture nomination would be incredible. 
uh, not only for an animated movie, but the first ever stop motion animated film to ever get yeah. a nomination for Best Picture. And only the fourth ever in history um, behind Up, Beauty and the Beast, and I believe um, The Lion. No, what was the other? No, um, Toy Story 3. Toy Story 3, Up, and Beauty and the Beast were the only three films in history to, or the first three animated films to ever receive a Best Picture nomination. Um, but look, it. I'm, I'll give you one right here, Adam Clay. Um, let me see here. I'm sorry. I'm trying to pick the... Oh, here we go. Uh, there's so many. Scott, there's so many. <laughs> Scott Derrickson, as a dad of two boys, the overwhelming residual feeling I have hours after watching Pinocchio is how comprehensively it captures the full range of pain and joy, both the agony and the ecstasy of being a father to a son. <laughs> if that isn't a glowing review, have I ever seen one? Uh, Adam Clay... Uh, you might say the Academy has an animation bias or no non-Disney animated film ever has ever gotten in. But if there's one person who can make, um, you know, this overcome its biases, it's Del Toro. And with no clear priority, I could see Netflix making the push for them. It just... Matthew Buck, Guillermo Del Toro's Pinocchio breathes new life into the story. Set against the backdrop of fascist Italy in this wondrous, gorgeous, highly enjoyable stop-motion musical that is, sweet, that is sweet and warm, but also poignant fairy tale of the importance of life and death. It sounds to me like just about every Guillermo del Toro movie, and it sounds to me kind of what the point of the original Pinocchio fairy yeah. tale was. Mm. This just seems like the best movie of the year, dare I even say, who knows? Um... Del Toro has been on fire lately, and I would love it. So, if even if it's not a serious contender, can you just imagine yeah. a Best Picture nomination yeah. for Pinocchio? Wild. Oh, my God. It'll be... I'm so excited for this movie. So excited. And it, I think Netflix might do a limited release in theaters, so some theaters might be playing mm. this movie. And you know what? Like, I'm so excited for this. I literally hate Pinocchio. Like, I, any movie that I've seen of Pinocchio, like, I don't like it. Mm. Um, but I'm so excited for this one. Well, this I one looks beautiful. I feel like the stop motion is, like, perfect for uh -huh. the story. I'm, I'm just so excited to see what he does with it. Oh, my goodness. Uh, part of what I feel, you know... Is baked into the into the praise, and a lot of the the critics I feel uh, alluded to this is the uh, the fact that of course Del Toro did not at all shy away from like the uh, horrors of the these fairy tales. I mean that, that's his whole thing. Yeah. I mean, and if you think about it, it's like well, and I, I think even he, some like I mean I know that. Maybe people might not want this, but I do hope that, like, if it's as good as people are saying, which I do not doubt for one second, mm -hmm. that he continues to do stuff like this. Oh, with, yes. Oh, my God. It'd be so cool. Particularly, I, I'm fascinated that he's found somewhat of a good relationship with Netflix. Don't forget, October 25th to October 31st, uh, Cabinet of Mysteries. Mm -hmm. uh, Del Toro uh, hosting that, of course. Um you look at and and also if you want more background into our love with Del Toro or also or him in general, I believe on this channel just two years ago, as a matter of fact, we did a deep five, deep five, a deep dive <laughs> into the Del Toro uh, filmography, and 
from the reviews, this feels a lot like, you know, his best movies like Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth, uh, The Devil's Backbone, Kronos. Speaking of like, I know earlier I mentioned Dracula, Kronos, one of the best vampire films uh, ever. And I also wanted to share IndieWire's review. This was written by Rafael Motomayor and uh, just a, a couple of excerpts from this. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio reimagines the classic fantasy tale through the most beautifully made stop-motion animation in years. A powerful and life-affirming father and son story about acceptance and love in the face of pain, misery, and fascism. And the filmmaker's love of monsters is what is easily his best film in a decade. In several ways, Pinocchio is a giant middle finger to the Disneyfication of both the original Carlo Cololi story of fairy tales in general. And by the way, just to be clear, it's a middle finger, not just to like the remake that I don't think he was referring to the to, to the Pinocchio remake. I think just in general, what Disney does with mm-hmm. fairy tales is what he was saying. If you expected the whole set during, oh, you know what I should say. If you expected the whole set during Mussolini's Italy thing to be pure window dressing, think again, because the threat of fascism informs every aspect of the film down to Pinocchio's circus acts eventually becoming propaganda shows supporting the army. Like Pan's... I know, right? Right? <laughs> like chills. Little uh, yeah. chills. Like Pan's Labyrinth, uh, The Devil's Backbone, this is a movie set during a particularly cruel period, focused on how children coped and suffered. There is some rather gruesome imagery, and it's not... And it is not only the villains who die horrible deaths. And yet, Pinocchio is far from a so- from a sour or bleak film. It's about the beauty of life being fleeting. A movie not about a monster who wants to be a real boy, but about a monster who wants his creator to love him the way he is and to be accepted for who he is. This is a movie about imperfect fathers and imperfect sons, about not meeting expectations and learning to live with them, about accepting that life ends, that loved ones will leave us, and about embracing the time we had together. There's horror, sure, but also warmth laughs, and plenty of songs. Guillermo del Toro has spent over a decade trying to get his dream stop-motion film made, and in that time, he's evolved as a filmmaker. Yet Pinocchio feels like a best mix of classic del Toro and new del Toro, with the wisdom and melancholy that comes with age and experience. Yet his bright-eyed love of fairy tales from his Spanish-language films Perhaps most impressive is how Pinocchio pushes the oldest form of animation to new places and, like the puppet himself, breathes life into inanimate objects. Please tell me I wasn't the only one getting chills reading that. That was Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. And um, I I also wanted to read because I I think, of course, when these premieres happen, there are – Questions, of course, you know, they do press. And I think to me, above all of this, the thing that really gets me so pumped up for this movie is when he said this about the movie he made. I was a little bit enraged that people demand obedience from Pinocchio. So I wanted to make a film about disobedience as a virtue to say that you shouldn't change to be loved. I love this man. Oh, my God. (laughs) And the thing is, he was talking about how much, like, um, this movie meant to him and to his mom. And 
heartbreaking of all, his mom passed away the day before this premiere, this past weekend. And he showed up? Yeah. Wild. And he showed up. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I can't wait <laughs> for this movie. I can't wait. Uh, it may, honestly, I, uh, yeah, it, it's what it is. I'm so excited. I know, I know. Uh, but yeah, I guess, uh, just also button up when I was thinking about the best actress race, it seems like it's a, it's a five-way race, it looks like. So isn't that fun? Hmm. Yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> Anywho. Let's go ahead and uh, get into some quick impressions of The Midnight Club. Now, The Midnight Club is the latest of Mike Flanagan's uh, collaborations with um, Netflix, as a matter of fact. If you're not aware, of course, that Mike Flanagan was the person behind The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, and of course, last year's uh, last year's mid um, I'm sorry, Midnight Mass. It's a lot of midnights here, <laughs> literally. This one is unique in that it is focused on uh, the youth, as they say. It's very like uh, teen gothic horror. It's a different vibe, although it still has a lot of the usual Flanagan um, trappings and dressings, if you will. Um, and this one, I will say, left me feeling a bit mixed in the end after watching all 10 episodes, because while I enjoyed the cast and I enjoyed the, the spooky aesthetic, of course, and everything, it leaves me wondering where he really was going with all of this, because it ends in a way, I don't want to spoil it or give it away, but it ends in a way where it suggests that Either they expect or hope for a second season. Mm. But that's not usually Flanagan's thing. Like, he tells, like, his seasons of television are basically long films. Like, he tells a single contained story, and it's not at all in his DNA to, like, tease anything or a continuation because the whole story is the whole story. And so there are some things... And you've already seen it because Alexis, you mentioned she has seen only the first four episodes are about there. But there are some things that are teased in the background that don't get resolved, actually, mm -hmm. by the end of 10 episodes. And that's not like him. Um, it also hasn't been doing nearly as well, according to the uh, Netflix rankings. And Peter himself uh, said, based on his observations, Flanagan himself hasn't been pushing or promoting this series as much as he has any of the other ones. Which is curious. And I feel like we need to be also be clear. Because um, Mike Flanagan, at least to me, has been operating on such a supreme level that anything that is like below that and the way that we discuss it and you can hear it in our voices, maybe perhaps we're a bit like we're not as impressed by it. We're not. But that isn't to suggest that it's crap. Mm -hmm. That isn't to suggest that it's bad. In fact, it's actually quite good in, in spaces and in some moments particularly, it's kind of like, ooh, you know, it, it kind of scratches the surface of what Flanagan's usually known for and everything. Um, but it is, I would say, distinct. It has a, a feel on its own and it does some things differently than the other shows, that's for sure. And maybe what explains it is 
they were told to expect some sort of a pickup for a continuation of some sort. There are most of the stuff in the season does get resolved, but there's a pretty, I'll just say it right now, there's a big cliffhanger that's mm-hmm. like, what the fuck? And maybe on some level you see, like, it's a character who like, should we really trust this person? Mm-hmm. And then it's revealed like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have. But then the, it, it just ends like that. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> that, yeah, but I will say though, it, and this is really not the fault of the, of the creator. It's just more of like the subject matter that we're dealing with here. And that is these teens who have terminal cancer of different sorts or terminal diseases that all come and live together to spend their final moments together. And it's just, um, depressing. It's very depressing. <laughs> it's unbelievably depressing. And it's like, oof, it's, it's heavy. Mm-hmm. It's really heavy. And, and I don't know. It's like, to be fair, though, most of Flanagan's work is pretty heavy. And yeah, I don't know yeah. if you ever finished Midnight Mass, but Midnight Mass had – I think Midnight Mass had his best finale. <laughs> his best finale. And some of the things that were accomplished in that finale were just downright breathtaking. So it's like it's really weird for me because like I feel like Midnight Mass so, – uh, most of Midnight Mass I think was some of the best stuff he's ever given us. Which is, of course, heresy because, you know, Hill House is one of the best things ever made and always will be. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Midnight Club, uh, I feel, is easily, for me anyway, at the bottom of all the things he's done. Uh, but then again, it's just like, I love everything this man does. Yeah, but it's I, like that's the th- being last is still being on top. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, so- yeah. To be fair, like, I've only seen four and a half episodes, and I think that it is really good, mm-hmm. um, oh, at yeah. least so far, what I've seen. And it's interesting, and it does, I like that it gets, at least for me, like, I feel because I know his kind of, like, style already, I'm always mm-hmm. looking at the background, I'm always yes. looking at things, like, I keep turning to David, and I'm like, oh, I think this is this, and... And I mean, I don't know if anything that I'm saying is actually what it is. Right. Um, but it's so fun to watch and it's interesting. Um, yeah, you're never not bored. But when I you, will you're say... You're never bored, I should say. Yeah, yeah, I will say that I feel like as of right now, mm-hmm. there I feel like there is a lot of things going on that I'm just like, interesting. Um, whereas like... In Hill House, for example, I feel like mm-hmm. it was easier to kind of follow along than and in latch this one. on to the people yeah. who were following with. I think uh-huh. there is, I don't know if, and I know some older curmudgeons would like say, well, they're teenagers, you know, maybe they're not, um, I don't know if that's what's going on here, but there is, I would say, um, I don't think at the end of it, I care about these characters anywhere near as much as I do. For all of the other characters and any of the other, I guess, shall we say the the Flanagan verse? You want to call it that? <laughs> yeah. Which I include, of course, Doctor Sleep in that of, as well. I, yeah, that I think to me, that's what also helps me gauge like how well I liked it or not. It's like for me, I love stories, I love uh, mysteries and high concepts, but you know, for me, at the end of the day, it's um, particularly with TV, obviously, uh, characters king. And when I measured the characters in this particular story uh, to the other works of Flanagan, it 
it it very clearly is at the bottom of the pack for me. Mm-hmm. Which again sounds disappointing, but it's like I yeah, mean, it's not. <laughs> also, don't forget uh, he has the the house of the, uh, or the fall of the house of Usher coming out uh, sometime next year. So he's got plenty of stuff in the barrel. And I also just want to say that you know, um, it has been a tough year for media. We haven't really talked about it as much, but it's kind of been pretty depressing the landscape considering that um netflix has kind of like had negative headline after negative headline and they've been canceling shit and they've been forced to you know tighten their their belt all the while of course warner media was dissolved and now it's warner discovery and then this this new asshole trumper in charge and just um you know just putting a stink on everything and it's just kind of gross and disgusting um but I do want to give credit where credit is due. Thank you, Netflix, for continuing to give Mike Flanagan <laughs> a job. <laughs> yes. I'll take it. He'll take it. We'll take it, please. Um, it's always um, kind of something we look forward to is to see anything new uh, coming out of this man. And con- considering there's more, you know, left, there's much more left to go with him. I'm just like, all right, whatever. Anything this man does, I'll be there. That's just the truth of it. He's just a great artist and uh, his work is, and I have to be real here, some of the most emotionally gripping material I think any story has ever had. Pretty amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kyle Lara, I don't know if you listen to this show, but hey, um, you're the only person that hasn't seen a single thing by Mike Flanagan. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Anyway. <laughs> That's a whole different thing. Did you get a chance to see Werewolf by Night? No. No. Okay. If you ever get a chance, let me know. Yeah. Um. So we'll we'll transition from that to something else spooky in nature. Hocus Pocus. Hocus Pocus too. We had discussed here on this show previously our huge reservations about a sequel and how it looked and what it would be like. And um, I hope you all have that. You know, as a way to inform you how this is going to go. So I believe, Alexis, you had somewhat of a party, a watch party, right? Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, it was just a couple of my friends. Um, they're actually the people that I used to work at the Disney store with. So, you know, we're all huge Halloween fans and Hocus Pocus fans. So we all just decided to get together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was... For me, real quick, real quick. Oh, directed by Ann Fletcher. Don't we have to go have to have our obligatory oh, uh, letterbox sponsorship <laughs> um, description? Otherwise, Peter would burn us to the ground. Um, directed by Ann Fletcher, Hocus Pocus 2, back and more glorious than ever. Or she just said, she should, they should have just said the witches are back because that's the song they performed anyway. Uh, in the movie, when they come back, it's they perform uh, basically Alton John's The Bitch is Back. Uh, I don't know if you know that song. It's the same song, but now it's just the witches are back, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Um, it's been 29 years since someone lit the black flame candle and resurrected the 17th century sisters, and they are looking for revenge. Now it is time for three high school students to stop the ravenous witches from wreaking a new kind of havoc on Salem before dawn and All Hallows' Eve, which is, call it, I mean, we all knew what that that's what the story was going to be. So, just putting that in advance. Go ahead, Alexis. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. I thought it was uh 
really funny and moments. Um, to be honest, I never expected anything like great, great. Um, mm-hmm. this great story to be told, absolutely not. <laughs> um, but there was some uh, like a few things. That I was like, okay, that was a bit lame. But for the most part, I had a lot of fun with it. I thought it, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was good. You know what it reminded me of? Um, and this isn't a con. And although some people would give, would, uh, would say it's kind of a con. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that the first film had a Disney Channel movie feel to it. Mm-hmm. Granted, of course, those didn't exist back in 1993, I believe, original movies from Disney Channel. Um, I don't think they did. Um, but I, there, of course, I mean, as a child of the 2000s, of course, there were a lot of um, decoms, as we call them, that, you know, we would watch every year. Of course, it's Halloween Time, Halloween Town, all those films, High School Musical, Cheetah Girls too, a whole bunch of them that were released in that era. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even I... I I bet you, though, if I put it on today, I'd be like, I can see a lot of the the seams, the little bit of the cracks, but it's like, this is, there was a little bit of magic in there that always worked. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so, when I would say, I guess that's my way of saying that this sequel did have that kind of vibe, but not to the point where it was the bad kind, you know? It, It... it wasn't as cheap as I thought it would look like. Yeah, same. That was surprising to me, and I was happy to see that. Um, honestly, I was pretty happy with how it looked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think the film is pretty, it's pretty good, pretty mm-hmm. okay. You know, it's like, it's not. It's I, like the third high school musical movie with, that they released in theaters. That's like the level that I see it in. Yes, basically. <laughs> and I know maybe I know for a lot of viewers who may not be used to talk of decoms, that might be like, wow, that's a pretty low bar. Well, I mean, it depends on if you like those films or yeah. not, right? That's, <laughs> that's kind a of, pretty high bar to, for me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think like what wasn't a surprise was that the Sanderson sisters were incredible. Yeah. Because you saw it in the trailers. They had the chemistry, they had the magic, and it was back. Um, I will say I wasn't put off or, you know, I wasn't put off by the yeah. new cast. I was actually pretty entertained. Yeah. That being said, I wasn't that enchanted with them, but they were very serviceable for yeah. what like was but required to be, as in the, the first movie. The original movie, I wasn't either. With mm-hmm. The only one that I liked was the sister. Right. The other two I thought was so boring. <laughs> yeah, and not, I, I felt the film is not that known these for were them. a little bit more interesting, if anything. There is... Uh, in the design of the film, clearly, we have uh, three um, best friends. Um, who have been showing up to the woods for years and years and years as their own, like, coven of friends here. They're very clearly meant to, like, reflect mm-hmm. the Sanderson sisters. I mean, the ending scene. <laughs> yeah, confirms that yeah. pretty well. So it's like, it is interesting that the, that the new uh, characters here were designed to reflect the sisters themselves. 
I'm not going to bitch too much about this only because this is nowhere near like the worst offenses by Disney, but it's another example of like not leaving well enough alone. And they, some people would say this whole film is an example of that. I, I mean, I, I felt myself just like, okay, you know what? We're here. We're doing this. I, I don't know if I'll watch this too many times, but it was fun. You know, it's it's not crap. So extra points for that. But the beginning, um, which was, again, fine. But it's like, did we really need to? And, you know, correct me here if I'm wrong. In the original film, was it ever explicitly like stated that the Sanderson sisters were actually biological sisters or if they were just like sisters of the coven as like witches? I don't think it was ever... I mean, they just say sisters. I assume yeah. they were sister sisters. I assume the opposite. I assume like, like oh, because like, they're sisters of witchcraft. You know, like okay. they all came, like they found a family, whatever. I what I found. I mean, are we going into spoilers? I guess. Uh, yeah, we can go into it now. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I found it a surprise that the other two sisters didn't have magic. I never realized that. Yeah, it's it's not something that's completely out. In front, it's like I wouldn't say they, they don't have magic, they just don't have the same abilities that yeah. Winifred had. Like, I think that was pretty on display. If you go back in the first movie, Winifred's always the one that was like doing the zaps, you yeah, know, and yeah. the spells. So she was the main witch. The other two had magic of sorts, but it, like, she backup has like dancers the in a way. enchanting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the blonde one, Sarah Jessica Parker, yeah. And they can find their brooms. <laughs> so, yeah that, yeah, that threw me off a little bit. I was like, wait, what? Um, but, yeah, I always thought that they were sisters. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, it's a minor thing. But to me, I should explain why it bugs me. It's like, it's just Disney going out of its way to over-explain yeah. uh, something that didn't really need to explain. Now, I get that the whole prologue, in a way... At the beginning of the film, for one, it informs what led the Sanderson sisters to, I guess, choose witchcraft, Mm -hmm. which not something I needed to see, but it was fun. It also establishes Tony Hale as, I guess, their nemesis of sorts off the very beginning, (laughs) Uh, which, I mean, I'm never going to be mad at Tony Hale. He's great at everything. And then, what is it? The... Other thing it does, and this may be, I don't know if it's been received in a controversial way. I don't think anything about this movie is controversial. Everything, everybody was like, yeah, this movie's fine. This movie's fun. Yeah. It does what, it, it does the job. I have a sneaking suspicion though, and I'm, I'm not sure how it left me feeling. I, I just watched this, I should say. And I think perhaps Peter, who has already stated he has chosen not to watch this for his personal well-being. Oh my God. <laughs> Um, I feel like this would be something that would be harped on if he would see this. And that is, okay, do you feel the point of this prologue to show how the Sanderson sisters came into the way of magic and witchcraft? And then particularly what happens in the climax where there is... A lot more heart, and what I'm referring to is when Winifred realizes that the spell that she was warned not to make comes at the consequence of losing her two sisters, and then she 
you know, changes her mind and basically in a way sort of sacrifices herself so she can be with them again and shines, shall we say, a much more significantly much more sympathetic light mm-hmm. uh, onto them than it was in the first film. And I wonder if that was, I guess, maybe on the part of Disney or the crew that they wanted to make their stars more sympathetic than they came across in the first movie. I don't know if it had that kind of like, if it made you think about that, but there is a slight turn from this movie to the first film. Whereas in the first movie, they're just evil bitches. That's why we love them. And then yeah. like, they they die. Yeah. You know? And here, you know, with, with the backstory, and it's even said at some point by one character in the film, I mean, they're misunderstood. They didn't mm-hmm. want to go into magic. It has that feeling in the air of, like, the Disneyfication of certain things. So I don't know if, if that's something that crossed your mind when you watched that. Because um, there there was somewhat of an emotional moment yeah. when Winifred made that choice to sacrifice herself. Um, everything that you just said just brought back Maleficent. which if you're not aware of for our listeners here maleficent is one of the most uh despised uh movies in alexis's uh history so that (laughs) might be the most off-putting i felt about this movie (laughs) since watching it Mm -hmm. um but i actually like I thought that the beginning was fine. I liked that mm-hmm. they show that, like, they were going to get separated, and that's why they yeah. felt the need to just kind of latch on to each other as mm-hmm. hard as possible. Right. Um, I personally, like, this is one of the issues that I have, is that I don't think that they went emotional enough with that ending. I see. Okay. But I also think that I had my expectations pretty high because I had heard of people being like, oh, it made me cry or like, oh, um, yeah. (laughs) So I I, like that's my own fault that I can we just say (laughs) I feel like um, people put too much stock and we're all we're all like, I think, guilty of this. We put too much stock in what we hear and particularly that that phrase, that turn of phrase, which I mentioned earlier when people were referring to um, Danielle Deadweiler in Till, which is, oh, she made me cry. Oh, it made me cry. Oftentimes that can have a, a really negative impact um, when you watch that thing. And inevitably, it doesn't make you feel that way. And it's like, what the fuck? I was expecting waterworks here. It kind of reminds me of, and that's one of the things I, I, I mean, everyone's opinion is different. A film is subjective. You are free to feel however you want. And I myself am guilty of doing this too when I like, I set myself too high or I put too much stock in other people's expect, I mean, opinions. But I know Nettie, I know one time many years ago in 2015, we, we did this show with Peter and Kyle and Nettie was here when we were doing Barely News Crew. We did like, a, I feel um, some kind of video. We were talking about the films of the year that we enjoy the most. And one of the ones that she didn't care for was Inside Out because she claims it was like 
way too hyped for her, which in fairness, we are all, we all have those things, right? Like we, we all, I, I'm sure we can name films that were hyped up way too much for us. And like when we see them, we're like, okay, but it's not that special. Or yeah. It's not that good. One of the ones that was, uh, I think, <laughs> it's so disgusted, Peter. I, it was hilarious. Uh, I think Julio went out of his way to watch a movie. Go figure. <laughs> and he watched everything everywhere all at once. And he was like, <laughs> and, and if you're not aware of the fact that Peter, upon the first viewing, declared it one of his favorite movies ever made. And Julio, who we should be fair to him, doesn't really watch movies. He enjoyed it, but he, I guess, didn't really understand what Peter was seeing in the film to make him say, oh, best movie of all time, one of the best films of all time. So, uh, and Peter was kind of pissed off, which <laughs> happens, obviously. So when you said that, it's like, yeah, that happens to all of us. It wasn't just you. Yeah. Um. Like it was, it was nice, you know. The whole she gave up her powers to be with her sisters type of thing. Mm. Yeah, I just, I don't know. There was just like I feel like there was something missing there, and then a lot of the things that she was saying, I truly could not understand her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why subtitles exist. Yeah, well, I watched that- it without subtitles. <laughs> Put I didn't think on. it was going to be a problem. Like, to me, I didn't have the it, remote. Yeah. It wasn't my TV. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I probably like would need to watch that part again. Maybe I'll I would also recommend you go back and watch Jaws and see Quint's oh, monologue. True. That we can actually understand what he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> With the subtitles on. Um, so, yeah, that that moment was just a bit awkward. I don't know. Like, I, I, I could see what they were going for, but I don't mm-hmm. know. I just feel like it didn't really work. Resonate with the yeah. way that you would want it to. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it was it was nice, I guess. <laughs> it was nice to see them again. It, it, it's, I think it, it speaks to, and some actors, man, it's amazing. It speaks to their their love for these roles. Yeah, and, and uh, that they had 30, so almost thirty years later, they just picked up as if they never even left. Yeah, honestly, and yeah, it's a pretty easygoing film. It gives you the stuff that you'd want a hocus pocus movie to give you. It's like there's not really anything here for me, and this may even be a compliment considering what network it's on and who the who are the people that made it. But like, there's nothing here that I feel comes close to enraging, and I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. Again, I feel like time will tell how this movie stays mm-hmm. with us. Like, for example, whenever I see Hocus Pocus, am I going to want to immediately jump into Hocus Pocus 2 or just watch Hocus Pocus again? Yeah. So we're going to have to wait and see how that works. But um, I, I honestly, like, this is the thing that I did notice also while watching it is, um, and I am a little bit... I mean, not scared, but just, like, I don't think that it'll have the same, like, staying power than the first one had. Um, And this movie kind of tells you and shows you because throughout the movie, they're sprinkling stuff from the first one. They Mm -hmm. they show up uh, from somebody's window, like, they're watching somebody... From outside of their house, and they're literally watching Hocus Pocus. Literally, um, 
the the people in the town are dressed like the characters from the first movie i don't know if you mm-hmm. noticed that like somebody's dressed like how the mom dressed up at, when they go to that halloween party oh, okay. um so oh, the cat yeah kept popping up. yeah the cat so you know i can't see people like dressing up like somebody from this movie except the sanderson sisters but they're literally wearing the same thing as in the first one so Mm -hmm. you know like these little things um like the only reason this movie will be watched is because they're watching the first one and it's gonna you know what i mean um Mm -hmm. but it does not have that same at least I think will not have that same impact that the first one had, and which we yeah. didn't expect either. No, but I just kind of like the only thing I think my stay is like that first switch that they meet in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, like that character had like nothing. <laughs> like I didn't really understand it, but <laughs> yeah, it. I think you could also say in moments it's a little bit meandering. Like there's this whole subplot with. Um, What's the character's name? Um, the one that's with um, Billy all the time, I believe. Oh, Gilbert. Yes. Gilbert, who runs the magic shop. He's with. We see him and Billy, and I guess you could say Billy didn't really need to be in the movie. Yeah. Uh, he kind of was just there. Was uh, so that to be fun. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean Doug Jones got a job, so I'm not gonna be mad about that. Hey, yeah, good for true. Him. <laughs> So that that that's the stuff in the movie that I found like okay well I think we're maybe cutting back too many times to this and it's not really like having any kind of presence really so yeah. it would have been nice if we I, they, just like they had- did have one thing that I was like that is pretty funny where Which- he basically reveals like they never put me back to sleep I've been awake this whole time that was that pisses funny. me off in a way because like <laughs> it ruins the end. Like I'll say, like the the I know some people would like say, oh, the ending to Hocus Pocus was like schmaltzy or overly sentimental. Fuck yeah. you! It was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, everybody had like a wonderful happy ending, and it was just the idea will not just be in your head. Like oh, he's just gonna sit there <laughs> for thirty years. I thought okay. it was pretty funny. I mean, yeah. But- <laughs> it was just like a fun thing to put in like, oh, you're right. <laughs> I will say this. Um, because how Disney has been like lately, I'm impressed. They did not shy away from the whole virgin. Um, yeah. Even thing. David talked about that too. He was like, I'm so happy that they didn't do that. Cause it was such, like a big thing in the first one as well. It was a big thing. And, <laughs> and, and, and I'm also happy that it wasn't just like a one and done. Like it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it kept coming up throughout different times in the film. And it was actually pretty funny when um, Gilbert was giving like the, the presentation in the, in the magic shop. And then one kid what's asked, a what's virgin? a virgin? <laughs> Everybody was like, <laughs> and it, it not that I've ever been asked that by any of the students that I've had, but like sometimes these kids ask you questions and I'm like, what What do you even say? Because like there was, I think one time I was overhearing two kids like talk about a book about evolution <laughs> and how that reconciles with religion, particularly Christianity. And it's like, well, oh, wow. <laughs> I, I just said like, well, I said, um, no, it's possible to believe in both. There are people who believe in both evolution and Christianity. Um, and then I just walked away <laughs> because I, I don't want to get myself fired or in trouble with anything because you know how people can be. Um, <laughs> it's so 
and I'm going to stop there because I got to go on a rant. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, at the end of the day, there's not much more to say than, yeah, it's a good watch. It's a good streaming movie, mm-hmm. I guess you could say, you know? And it, it's good for a watch party. It's very laid back. It's it's fun in all the places it needs to be. And yeah. yeah, it's what you would expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would even say a fair bit more considering it's not offensive and it's not enraging, and it's not a dumpster fire. And I feel those well, are all pluses. That's not true. There was some lady that went on a whole thing. Like, she was getting interviewed and stuff by, like, news anchors. Because what? she said that this is the devil's movie. Oh, yes. You know, I would say, up until recently, my whole life, I've not really been... Up until recently, I was never really into Halloween. I, I mostly blame my mom for all that because she's not really into in, uh, that as well. But it was never for that reason. It was, yeah. for, I guess, indifference. But the people <laughs> who buy into that notion, wow, <sighs> what century are you living in? <laughs> what century are you living in? Yeah. Like people literally, because she, I think she went on like TikTok. At least that's where I saw it. Um, oh, beautiful! Where she's like, I like, I that her kids were watching it, and she just like couldn't believe it, and like all these things, and like legit people were like thinking it was a joke because she was like hysterical. She was like crying. <laughs> she was crying. Yeah, it was funny, but. Okay. <laughs> People just like to be bothered. It reminds me of this video. I think it was from 2020. There was this like this blonde female cop who was like recording oh, the, herself in her this, car. The McDonald's thing. Yeah, and she was having a breakdown because like, why are people not nice to us anymore? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> she said, "I want my food now. If not, racist." <laughs> Oh, my God. It's so funny. Uh, anyway, uh, that was Hocus Pocus 2. Before we move on to the other stuff, I did want to say real quick. Um, in the spirit of the season, of course, um, Alexis is going to be visiting. So is it still called Boo Bash? Uh, Oogie Boogie Bash. Oogie Boogie Bash. There you go. Tell us how that came to be. Um, Although, did you, like, cast a spell, <laughs> and all of. of a sudden you're going to be there? <laughs> um, basically, my, so my coworkers, or I had a, a few coworkers that were planning this trip for, like, five months, mm-hmm. um, and it, it was crazy because um, one person paid for everything, um, like, in her credit card. So keep in mind... You know, Disney is not cheap. Like, it hasn't been for a hot minute. Um, and they're going for three, two days, but they they basically have to pay for three tickets because Oogie Boogie Bash is a separate mm-hmm. ticket altogether. Um, so I'm paying, like, over $500 for myself. So imagine one, two, for three, yourself? four, six people. Damn. Six tickets are being, like, bought. Or six people are buying tickets, right? And she's paying for everything. Um, Isn't that, like... No, that can't be what I'm... Like, yes. Isn't that, like, $3,000? Yes. Yes. 
Um, so again, five months ago, they were at work. Like, I remember watching them, like... Well, they clearly don't have any student debt. the Oogie Boogie Bash could sell out, like, within mm-hmm. minutes. But luckily... And I think that's why they were, like... She paid for everything because they were yeah. all, like, on their phone. Like, I got it, I got it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and cut to, like, two, three weeks ago... Mm-hmm. Um, which is when I found out about this, that uh, two people paid for their, t- like, paid her for their ticket, but they ended up deciding not to go, which is fine because she at least got paid. But then another two people decided that they're not going, but had not paid her. Oh, no. And again, I'm paying over $500. And th- like this is two people no, that are no 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 that you can't do that like exactly. Disney because like, no you can't Disney doesn't do refunds once you buy yeah. in you cannot like yeah was she able to replace all the people so I was one of the replacements right I, <laughs> and I, I figured think she decided to take her mom for the second one because she's like I already paid for it like whatever um, oh no so I I like walked in on them talking about it and I was like you guys are going to Disney. <laughs> Um, and they were like, yeah, and it was a, like, at first I was like, literally like for five minutes, I was like, no, because they're going on Sunday to Oogie Boogie Bash and I have to work on Monday, which is like a mm-hmm. seven hour drive from where I live. Um, so I was like, no, like, I don't think I can. And then also, cause I like, I have stuff going on that week that I wasn't going to be at work. So I was like, it's too late. Like I can't ask for the day, blah, blah, blah. And then like two seconds later, I'm like, I'm just going to drive all night. Like, I really want to go to this. <laughs> Are you serious? So, um, the, like, one of the, our managers was back there and she was, like, listening to us talk. And she was like, what? No, like, you're not going to drive all night. And I was like, yeah, like, I can't, like, I really want to go to this. I've never been to Oogie Boogie Bash. Mm-hmm. I only went to the one at Disneyland, which is a lot of fun. And I know that this one's, like way better than the other one not to say that the other one was bad but there's just so much Mm -hmm. more um and so she like went over to my manager and was like you need to give her the day off (laughs) so she gave her the day and so this is that's good that's good yeah because driving all night yeah i yeah i was ready the last thing you need is some like some figure to show up and like almost time alexis uh quoting a smile Why would you do I that? Because oh, it's not gonna happen anymore. Because you're not driving all night anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> speaking of, real quick, I went. I actually saw it again over the weekend with my mom. Um, we enjoyed ourselves. It was great experience. Just she nervous laughs as well. It's great to know that. Um, evidently, Smile is doing amazing business. It's even taking away from Halloween Ends, which we're not covering on the show because it sucks. And of course, we told you it was going to suck. Guess what? It sucks. Even so much so that um, it's taking a lot of business away from uh, Halloween Ends, which means Smile's word of mouth is really getting out there. It's a really good movie. Anyway. Yeah. You were saying about... Did I tell you that I... um told another one of my coworkers about it and she like went to go watch it like right after yes he did <laughs> yeah so yeah i'm I'm happy uh for you and i can't wait to see i can't wait to hear your report 
on the happenings of uh What's it called again? Boobash? Oogie Boogie Bash. Oogie Boogie Bash. I don't know why I keep saying Boobash. Yeah, I'm excited because, I mean, yeah, I think we talked about it last time that they had like a bunch of new characters. Yes. Go um, see Ernesto de la Cruz. Also, I don't know if you saw this, but there was video of it. I'm, I'm not sure if it's still there, but they had the Werewolf by Night. Yes, at, at, I did. Uh, and uh, Zombie Captain America. Mm-hmm. They have Mother Gothel, I think, for the first time and Madame yeah. Mim. I'm, I'm excited. I'm so excited to see Sid. From Toy oh, Story. Yes, he was so yes. fun last year. Yeah. yeah. It's a great character, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. I mean, of course, I would know. I've just seen the, the footage <laughs> uh, of that. But yeah. no, I, I, I too know how expensive it is. Earlier this year, I literally like paid my family's entire tickets to go see Disney, to go to Disney earlier this year. It was like really? $1,000. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. For four tickets. Uh, it was a park hopper ticket one day um, and also included the... Um, Genie Plus. Mm. You yeah. did you did Genie Plus? Yeah, because it was one day. How, this is what I did. How? Okay. How does it work or how did I? Yeah. Sorry, can mm-hmm. we pause? My mom's like outside and she forgot her keys. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. Of course. No, yeah. We're yeah. not done with this conversation. <laughs> We're not. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be right back. All right. Weirdly. Okay. We're not done with this conversation, she says. Well, yeah, that's that's something. I know. That's kind of how these things go here. Um, while I have your attention here and I'll, while I wait for Alexis to come back, um, yeah, I don't know if we're going to be doing a Black Adam review. It doesn't, I mean, it's out in theaters apparently already and uh, the word of mouth has not been particularly good. However, one of the movies that hilariously has all, you know, received, you know, better reviews, but one that I guess you could also say seems all the same in terms of like, well, I could see this movie coming a mile away as far as like what's going to happen. And a film that Alexis and I have already like mentioned and have expressed interest in seeing, and that would be Ticket to Paradise with George Clooney and Julia Roberts, which is the same rom-com I'm sure many people have seen thousands and thousands of times. I personally am low-key rooting for that movie. I'm, I'm curious to see what business it does, of course. Uh, October, it's not really the season for a rom-com, so uh, I am curious to see if uh, Clooney and Roberts are movie stars. You know, they bring the star power that this movie would need, so I'm very much curious to see how that film performs, and I'm not going to lie, even though that trailer completely gave away what this film is going to be, I'm definitely there all in. Like, seriously? That's not even a question. Um, and I also want to take this time, again, while Alexis is taking this time away from the podcast, I, I also wanted to remind people of some other projects and movies that um, may not have been on their radar, but just to go ahead and, and uh, sell home the point. I have not yet seen this myself, but this is the, the directorial feature debut by Amy Poehler called Lucy and Desi. Um, and it is, explores the unlikely partnership and enduring legacy of one of the most prolific power couples in entertainment history. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz risked everything to be together. Um, of course, we saw Being the Ricardos last year by Aaron Sorkin, which, I mean, we had really nice things to say about that film. Some people, not so much. But uh, if you want to see a documentary on those two, that's and I believe it also received the nomination, as a matter of fact. 
um, this past week, in addition to some other documentaries that include Aftershock, an alarmingly disproportionate number of black women are failed every year by the U.S. maternal healthcare system. Shimoni Gibson and Amber Rose Isaac were vibrant, excited mothers-to-be whose deaths due to childbirth complications were preventable. Now their partners and families are determined to sound a rallying cry around the chilling, yet largely ignored crisis. Uh, Just to be clear, I'm listing off a number of documentary films that were just nominated this past week uh, for awards. Good Night Opie, the inspirational true story of Opportunity, a rover that was sent to Mars over a 90-day mission but ended up surviving for 15 years. Follow Opportunity's groundbreaking journey on Mars and the remarkable bond forged between a robot and her human, humans millions of miles away. Also, the Janes. They didn't have a choice. Defying the state legislature that outlawed abortion, the Catholic Church had condemned it, and the Chicago mob that was profiting from it, the members of Jane risked their personal and professional lives to support women with unwanted pregnancies in the pre-Roe v. Wade era, a time when abortion was a crime in most states and even circulating information about abortion was a felony in Illinois, the Janes provided low-cost and free abortions to an estimated 11,000 women. Also, we have Sydney. This revealing documentary honors the legendary Sydney Poitier, iconic actor, filmmaker, and civil rights activist, featuring interviews with Denzel Washington, Spike Lee, and Halle Berry, and more. Next is Descendant. History exists beyond what is written. The Africa town residents in Mobile, Alabama, have shared stories about the, their origins for generations. Their community was founded by enslaved ancestors who were transported in, nine, in 1860 aboard the last known and illegal slave ship. Though the ship was intentionally destroyed upon arrival, its memory and legacy weren't. Now the long-awaited discovery of the Clotilda's remains offers this community a tangible link to their ancestors and validation of a history so many tried to bury uh one more here fire of love uh katia and maurice Kraft loved two things each other and volcanoes for two decades the daring french volcanologist couple were seduced by the thrill and danger of this elemental love triangle they roamed the planet, chasing eruptions and their aftermath, documenting the discoveries in stunning photographs and breathtaking film to share with an increasingly curious public in media appearances and lecture tours. Ultimately, Katia... Ooh, I'm not going to say that's a spoiler. Anyway, I was just reading off a, bit, a bunch of um, documentary movies that have been getting notoriety, uh, all of which were nominated for awards this past week. So I wanted to just give people something to know about. In addition to, I believe, people who would know of this, Moon Age Daydream, which is the David Bowie documentary that's been like so oh, yeah. uh, talked about, which I'm for sure going to watch that yeah, one. That, that one looks, looks so, so exciting. good. Uh, I believe it's called, yeah, Moon Age Daydream. Um, so yeah, just wanted to give people more uh, selections of films. So as you were saying, you had some questions? Yes. Um, how did mm-hmm. you like Genie Plus? I didn't like spending money on yeah. it. I'll tell you that. I uh, I have long bemoaned the existence of Disney of of uh, G- Genie Plus and the idea of its existence just perturbs me deeply. Um, however, it's one of those things where like I had already like 
spent so much money? What was 80 bucks more? <laughs> I mean, I'm a family. It was a family of four. And I really felt like there is no better way to get the most out of your day than uh, going on as many rides as possible, which is what not only what I wanted, but what everybody wanted out of. So it helped tremendously. It really did. I think I did, we had like 15 rides more or less. That's what the, the Genie Plus helped with. I believe we used it for um, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. We used it for Smuggler's Run. Um, we ended up using it for, Jesus, it was um, both Mission Breakout and Incriticoaster. Uh, which led me to be injured, by the way. I'm not sure if I told you that. Yes. <laughs> uh, my my arm was literally swollen because of how like uh, how much I was being thrown around um, by those things uh, and other attractions. No, you know what? It was actually very useful. If you're only going to be there the one day, mm-hmm. I'm sad to say, and I'm sad to report, that's the best option you have on the table to get as much out of your day as possible. If and I want to stress if rides are your priority of course that's not the priority for all people but and it wasn't particularly crowded i i mean it was but it wasn't like suffocating Mm -hmm. but still yeah um well i have um something that's gonna make you even happier oh great (laughs) um they started the magic bands this week over at disneyland great that just sounds like another expense to me. They're $30. Great. <laughs> and somehow they've been made to be mandatory uh, as a, um, in a way not, where you kind of need it to be accessible? Not particularly. I mean, when I went to Disney World, which is where, you know, everything like that started, mm-hmm. I we didn't really need them. We never felt like we needed them. Um, but I've also heard that in recent years, because they know that they've been trying to go out of their way to make yeah. you need them. Like the, I we didn't stay at a Disney hotel, mm-hmm. but I can only assume that if you have a magic band and you're staying at a Disney hotel, the experience is uh, elevated rather than if you don't have a magic band. Because I know that, um, like you can sync your card up to the band. Um, and you, like, anything that goes on in the hotel, from transportation, anything, like, you can use your magic band with that. You can even use it as a, like, a room key, I believe. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um. But, I mean, that, that's the motto at Disney. If you can pay for it, you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they're all about. <laughs> even more so these days. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Kill me. Anyway, um, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on all those things um, when you come back the next time. I'm not getting a magic band, so because oh, no. right now I think it's only for um, key holders, um, whatever the I know yeah. pass holders. Yeah. Um, I think either next week or the week after is going to be out for the public, um, mm-hmm. so I won't be there. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, let's go ahead and move on to uh, a, a big old headache. She-Hulk. You haven't seen a single episode, right? Um, I've seen clips. The only okay. actually clip that I've seen is the twerking one. Okay. I did see a clip of this last one, but I mm-hmm. was so confused that I stopped it. Great. Uh, I, I wouldn't blame you. 
<laughs> Did you read the description I sent over? Yes. Okay. So let me just say this. She-Hulk isn't complete garbage in this. I'll say this. Even though when I say that, it infers that it is garbage on some level. Um, I hope, like uh, the Daily Beast even wrote this in response to the finale. She-Hulk was solid as garbage, but it didn't have to be. Which I agree with that. And, and this is why it's garbage to me. It's garbage to me because of how lazy it was and how it so often failed to even do, to even hit their very low bar. For me, it's garbage because it didn't even bother reaching for the high bar this could, this could have been. I feel like Kevin Feige and even the team he hired were so ill-equipped to deal with what this should have been. And the head writer Gao herself has um she's um made a lot of comments that David and I have made us question whether or not she low key hates Kevin Feige. And that continues to happen, you know, throughout these interviews. I feel like with me, my just as as a first thing to hit with the show and why it's so hard to get into is the characters. It is so hard to care about them. It is so hard to like them. And on some level, here's for me. Um, the best thing about the show is Tatiana Maslany. Through her performance, and even through a very mediocre show, like very mediocre, even for Marvel's standards, very mediocre. And that's saying something. Um, although I want to be clear. And to, and to, you know, just um, be fair to Inhumans. It is still the worst of all of, all of them. And to be, I mean, you have to respect the trash that Inhumans was. Like, nothing has come close to that. So, to be fair to Inhumans, we're, we don't go anywhere near that. That's for sure. Um, but this is the weird thing. Tatiana Maslany, through her performance and her likability factor was able to make me care a little bit about this character, even though the writing at no point made me come close to liking her whatsoever. The only way I would see her face and I would feel good is because I think Tatiana is a great actor and she was able to do something, not much, but something with what she was given. Um, But it became really annoying that every single episode is a crap storm happens in Jen's life. And she, the writers make her so ill-equipped to deal with any of the fucking like shit storms that come her way. That, that's, that's every episode of the show is like, she starts off the episode, something really bad happens to her. It's made worse that it was entirely preventable, but she kind of comes across as, I'm sorry to say, incompetent, that she ends up being often the cause for why these things happen to her. And then things, I'll just say contrivances happen on the show that really ruin the experience. Like, for example, in the penultimate episode, she gets so pissed off, she turns into She-Hulk. And she goes ballistic 
Her crime, though, was property damage. Like she brought down a monitor because some creep had hacked her phone and was like showing a whole bunch of inappropriate pictures of her in video for a whole room of like important people to see. So when she went ballistic, everybody was like scared of her. Nobody at all was like put off by the fact that this woman's phone was hacked and the videos were like showing. Everybody panics. They leave in a panic. And then all the while, the terrorists that hijacked her phone were there in that room. No one does anything to stop them. The police show up. Or I should say damage control stops uh, shows up. Oh, they're here. Let's, yeah, they're here. <laughs> they They let the terrorists who are very obviously dressed in terrorist garb like they look like terrorists and that like they have like you know they're dressed in black and they have like face masks and everything to hide their identity they let them go but they arrest she-hulk oh wow i really hate that that is so infuriating like unbelievably infuriating and stupid and it gets even worse when the next episode which is the beginning of the finale she is they don't even go to trial. She's given a plea deal and she takes it where she loses her job. She can't get a job anywhere else. And she has they, they put an ankle monitor on her that prevents her from turning into She-Hulk. All because she brought down a monitor where she herself was being attacked. That is so bad. And like... It's so funny that you have a show like Andor <laughs> being released at the same time by the same studio. <laughs> oh no, that is so and, bad. Because Andor has some things to say and meaningful <laughs> things and, and it's executed well. Whereas here, <laughs> what was the point of this? I guess, like, is it that women are just treated badly? Okay, yeah, but it's like, this is so cartoonishly bad. Like, these are lawyers. And the best they can do is take a plea deal because she brought down a monitor and nobody was hurt. Nobody was injured except her. Oh, no. And this is what I this is what I mean, like where every episode is written to like, what's the worst, crappiest, like shittiest thing we can do to Jennifer? And then just watch her go through it, but to no point, to no purpose. She doesn't really grow all that much except for one instance. And this is where I will say, and it's gonna make me sound like you know, I should have also been very clear, because some people have been like really annoying on the left, where it's like, well, if you don't like She-Hulk. You're like a um, alt-right dude bro, and you hate women. And, and you hate fun. You're, and, you, and your opinion oh means no. nothing. You hate and women? Did you not watch it? <laughs> that's very counterproductive. That is so very fucking counterproductive. Because, like, I mean, uh, I shouldn't have to clarify that if you are an individual that subscribes to YouTube channels who are very clearly influenced by the alt-right or are right-wing and are pushing, even though they will not admit a right-wing conservative propaganda, and if you have been so stupid as to have been susceptible by them and, like, recruited by them, and if you feel like what they say, which is if you believe in, like, you know, fighting the wokeness or, like, 
you know, being against women and, and LGBT and minorities, if that's what you are, go fuck yourself. You need to take a look inside yourself and think, is this really what I'm supposed to be as a human being? Is to just conflate reality and just push hatred, my hatred on everybody else. Because that's what you are. And a lot of people don't admit that. They don't think that's what they are. But they have now taken to, as we've mentioned these last few years, any property that is led by a woman or a minority of any kind is now instantly attacked, instantly vilified because of these people. And as I've said from day one, what they are, the garbage that they are, they can go to hell. Okay? Just putting that out there. It didn't need to be clarified, but just to put that out there again. And you know, one positive thing I will say about this show is it had a really it it had the balls to incorporate that element into the show because these terrorists so i was referring to they're this group called intelligentsia which is basically the embodiment of these online like trolls who have no idea they're being like led by alt-right conservatives and so it incorporated that into the show and i'll give them bonus points for that being a thing in here but they're almost completely undone because they do nothing with that storyline. That it goes nowhere. It it it, it doesn't like. Well, I, I should also say, most storylines go nowhere. <laughs> uh, that's just how kind of how the show went. You know, there's even a uh, Titania was a character that was like so like in the early weeks assumed to be a big part of the show. She's there for like two or three episodes. And has like no relationship with like She-Hulk. Is She's it the there same as um, Miss Marvel, where like you can clearly see where the studio came in and said no, drop all of this, and go from here, or is it that they just had no clue what they were doing? No disrespect. Uh, you know, well, maybe the. You know, no offense to the writing team on She-Hulk, but it would be intellectually insulting to suggest that they are anywhere near on the level that the, the, the Miss Marvel writers were. Okay. The people that were on this show, I, to answer your question, ideally, as with Miss Marvel, a show like this would have benefited greatly from more episodes than just what they were given. Across the board, to me anyway... That just seems to be the general rule for these shows. Particularly if She-Hulk, in your mind, would be like a, a sitcom. Now, sometimes it's that, but most of the time it's not. So that's why it, that's one of the things here that's just so broken, where it's like this show is constantly looking for an identity. It's looking for something about it that's unique, but it just gets nowhere near that. That's why every single episode is underwhelming, is static, is mediocre, because it just doesn't get anywhere. Like ideally, this should be a sitcom, but it's not written very like good. Well. well Sometimes it is written like that, but it's just it. It can't be that because it's just not good. Mm -hmm. The humor isn't very good. Like we'll get to <laughs> this this show's idea of what humor is, but we're not there just yet. Just want to talk about the things that are inherently just broken within this show. There are so many side characters who get nothing 
and you don't care anything for because of course you wouldn't. Um, it doesn't help that most of the people you see are just generally unlikable. Generally unlikable. Uh, so yeah, that was, that's bad. Um, there is one exception though. And I also wanted to say this because, um, in addition to like bringing up the whole like alt-right Nazis and everything and that not being them, because it's going to make me sound like such a dude bro to say that the best episode of the season was the one with Matt Murdock in it. <laughs> Which, uh, there was one moment I wanted to scream. Wait, there was the moment he was introduced. I don't know if you saw that, but it was in a courtroom. One of the few courtroom scenes in this whole show, by the way. Because again, they can't write courtroom scenes that well, so they had to like write around that. This is the people... Kevin Feige hired people who openly admitted they cannot write courtroom yeah, scenes to that. a courtroom show. <laughs> anyway, Matt Murdock walks in and they're like, out of nowhere, this triumphant music that plays. It, um, it reminds me of... Um, Bail Organa, when he kind of showed up for like half of a second in Rogue One, mm -hmm. and then the Force theme plays, da 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 da, da and then he says nothing. <laughs> and, but even then, it's like, but that was weird. Yeah. Because why would you play that for this character? It, it, it's so dumb. And then they did a variation of like that when Matt Murdock came into the show, which whatever. I just, instant groaner for me. But here's the thing. Him being on the show made everything click. Honestly, for a couple of minutes. Him being on the show elevated Jen's character. And it kind of pointed her to a different kind of purpose. A different kind of identity. She herself, I guess you could say because the show never gave her one, was looking for some kind of an identity. And the entire season, she was pretty firm and like, I'm not about that superhero life. I don't consider myself one. I don't want to be one. I just want to be a lawyer. But with him being brought in and they get to know each other very well. And obviously she finds out that he's Daredevil and then they do superhero things together. She begins through her attraction through him. Um, she begins to see this is what I could do. And it kind of points her in an actual direction. And that's what that show could actually be like. And so him being on the show did a lot of good. Unfortunately, it came so late in the season that we just end here. And it's like, well, I guess this is for season two, if there ever is one. I don't know. It's a shame. What's also even more of a shame is that, I hate to say this. Wow. Um... Charlie Cox and um, Titana Maslany had amazing chemistry. I know there were a lot of people that were like, how dare Daredevil have sex with Jennifer Walters? I can't believe he would do that. Okay, those people are immature child people. I don't know what... They had sex. And they cut away to that. And it was like... It was honestly kind of romantic. Like I'm not even going to lie. Like there were the The... The stuff with them together, there's just a spark there. And I couldn't believe my eyes. Like, wow, this is working. <laughs> like, this 
this actually works. And it's like, there's even a scene in the finale where like Matt is there having dinner, having a picnic with, her, with Jen and her family. And it, they're kind of cute together. And it's like, wow, this, I could see this working. It's too bad. It's <laughs> on this show where nothing ever seems to be working. Like legit, nothing seems to be working. So that was weird to experience. Um, but also, I, it was something to see. And it also just made me realize, wow, I, it was, it was the same Matt Murdock. It was the same character from the show. It felt, and Charlie Cox, wow. It's like he'd never stop playing that character. And it kind of, it, I know it's not going to be anywhere near as good and it may not even be good, but it kind of low-key made me like a little bit excited for the upcoming Born Again series Mm -hmm. because of how good he was in this. But I just know it's not going to be good. So I don't, yeah, that's a whole thing. Anyway, just throwing out some positives there about what I thought was good in the show. That finale though. I think kind of low key broke me because. Can I, mean, I just you say? Ran. I mean, you're yeah. you're gonna say you know what you feel, and I know a rant is please, coming. Please go ahead. I just want to say <laughs> when it came out, I saw clips of it. I was very confused, <laughs> and then David woke up the next morning and he tried his best to explain what was going on. I did not understand. <laughs> um, but again, that is my own fault probably because I have not watched a single episode. Um, and then I had a friend text me who he watched it and he <laughs> was like... I mean, we didn't really, like, go into depth about it, but he was like, I don't know what I just watched. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and I sent you a description of what happened. Yes. We still can't make character tales of what happened. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, basically, this finale is... I told you the beginning of it, where she kind of loses her job and she's forced to wear this bracelet. And so she goes to Emil Blonsky's um, house. He has a compound where he does like this um, motivational speaking. That was the whole thing this season. Um, Only she can't get a hold of Blonsky because it turns out he was there. And the show passes it off as he was just unaware that the people he was hosting in his barn were the intelligentsia terrorists that like caused Jen to go through all this in the first place. So Jen figures it out. Well, she stumbles into it. And then the episode starts going like nuts. Cause out of nowhere, Titania shows up. Then Bruce Banner's Hulk shows up and then like they start fighting. And then Jen literally just like presses pause on the episode. Now, again, this might help more if you want to wear the fact that, you forget because they so rarely use it and it's kind of random when it is used. But like she has the ability to break the fourth wall, kind of like Deadpool. So what she does here is she stops the episode, looks into the camera and asks, are we really doing this? And so she like 
basically says, no, this is not happening. And then the screen just like cuts to the Disney plus Marvel homepage. And for a moment you think that the uh, glitch just happened. I hope it did because I hope this is not what they're going to do. And then they did this because what happens, you see She-Hulk literally pop out of her Disney plus window breaks into another one. And the suggestion is she leaves the show altogether. She leaves Disney Plus altogether. And what we see now is footage of her walking across. She literally was walking across the Walt Disney Animation building. That they're trying to tear down, but okay. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, and so she breaks into the writer's room. And the writers literally make a cameo in the episode. And she asks, what the fuck? And they're like, well, this is what Kevin wants. This is where I say, do these writers low-key have a vendetta against Kevin Feige? <laughs> right? And I'm gonna I'm gonna get more into that in a minute, but like, hmm, this I don't know. And so she hulks like, okay, so I'll go see Kevin. Then she goes into like this waiting room, and then she demands to see Kevin. And then, like, they try to, like, remove her from the building, and then so she escapes. And then she ends up finally meeting Kevin. Only it's not Kevin Feige. And I cannot make this up. It is an AI machine. She walks into this room where all the Marvel movies are playing. And then Kevin is this AI that just decides and makes all the decisions. And... What proceeds to happen is Jen complains that nothing in her finale is making sense and that it needs to be more about her. And can we not just have a fight this one time? And Kevin was like, okay, I see you have a point. And so what ended up, what ends up happening in the end is Jen just like goes back. There is no fighting. Everything kind of like is solved and then it ends and then it ends. A lot of people seemingly were on board with it because they would say this was an example of um, Marvel poking fun at themselves and like being in on the joke for a lot of their continuous shortcomings to me this came across very much so as the writers did not know what to do at the end of the season and so they were so committed into like let's just go meta with it let's just like do this and people will, will, will think like wow this was so mind-blowing and I didn't see this coming and people would actually mistake this for being funny. I'm not going to lie. I feel like that whole segment of her walking out of her show and going all to the writers and then the Kevin thing was downright some of the most painful, maybe the most painful sequence I've ever had to sit through in anything MCU related because they really thought they were saying something profound. They really thought they were doing something funny and it wasn't, it was sad. 
It was pathetic. It was embarrassing. And you get no points. It's even more enraging on different levels because like they say things like, well, Jen literally says like, well, every Marvel movie ends the same. And the AI is like, who says that? The AI is here in Kevin. It's like, you don't get points for knowing that's a continued criticism. And yet you do nothing to solve that problem in all of your other projects. You get no credit for understanding the problems that all the people have with you. And yet you refuse to change anything in your precious formula. That's what pisses me off about all this. Like, you know, deep down, like what it is you're doing here, but you don't want to change. You don't want to improve anything. You don't want to change anything. Just something remotely interesting. So no, no cookies for you. You don't get that for like, oh yeah, we know what your problem is. Ha ha, we know it. That does nothing. And then even worse so, they do this joke here where like he literally asks She-Hulk to transition back into a human because we they can't afford them. They can't afford her having That's the so look. Bad. He literally says, he literally says, the visual effects department have already moved on to that another project. So they cannot bad. work on you. I would, I, I, I did. I do remember having this conversation with David. I was, I don't know, because he kind of made it seem like, like yeah, they were making fun of themselves. But like, there's a difference when, or I don't know. It is very well known, or at least between us. Probably, maybe not the wider audience that, you know, the VFX team or (laughs) VFX artists are extremely underpaid. um, Every studio, across as an industry, industry, but particularly with Marvel. They just had that scandal that broke this past summer. Yes. Um, That's the thing. They just had a scandal that broke this past. And in in light of that... They make a joke yeah, instead so of actually bad. fixing the problems. That is so bad. They joke about it. It's like it reminds me of when they had James Corden and Rebel Wilson dress up as cats. Because they were both in the movie Cats. Yeah. They dressed up in cat costumes. Yeah. And they presented the visual effects uh, Oscar. And they just like made fun of the movie that they were in. That was such a mean-spirited yeah. thing to do. This doesn't, like, fix the fucking problem. People are underpaid. People are leaving this industry because you, like, so many examples have broke out this summer of how you make them or you threaten them, yeah. shall we say. Yeah. The, the, you threaten their livelihoods if they don't do your big movie, all of your movies. And people hate working for you. And you think, oh, you're going to make yourselves look better by, like, making a joke of it? Yeah. Fuck off. That was... <laughs> so unbelievably enraging. Oh my god. I, I, I wanted to throw up. We're like literally, I think one time in... Um, I think it's one time in... When she's talking to the AI. Or Kevin, shall we say. She like says, um, when is X-Men coming? Then looks into the camera and like gives a wink and a nod. <laughs> also, about um, one of the people who worked on She-Hulk was talking about um, 
Kevin and because Kevin at one point I think they wanted him to actually be in the episode, but then he was like, "No, I don't want to do that." Um, and then one person says, "No, our hope was that Kevin would do the voice, oh, the voice of it, but he had no desire to do that, and he really wanted to make sure there was a separation between him and the AI brain." <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> I wonder why he wanted there to be a separation. Maybe because he knows, like, what the implication would be there. Like, if I were Kevin Feige, I'd be like, you know how you're making me look like, right? This is not a good look for any of us. Why are we going to... Why would he agree to this? Right? That's so weird. I don't know. I literally hate everything has been said and i didn't even watch a stupid episode <laughs> it's infuriating right like I, this is my live reaction i i i, I send this to all of you i'm watching the she-hulk finale am i the only one that feels the writers on the show really hate kevin feige <laughs> because a lot of this stuff feels rather personal but masked with a touch of over-the-top meta-ness that makes the things they're saying about him seem like they're in on the joke rather than not a thi- not so thinly veiled critique even down to having Kev- the Kevin Feige version of this fourth wall breaking finale be in the form of an artificial intelligence machine that just craps out scripts. Like, I don't know how that is supposed to be any sort of compliment. Like, if I was being compared or called that, that would be pretty fucking critical. And it's just, like, it's so weird to me that they're having, like, this character associated to the Hulk be a joke? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess you could say, like, the same thing about Thor. Like, you know, a lot of people don't like his movies because they say that the jokes are too much and stuff, and they're kind of making his character seem like a just a, a long-running joke now. You know what? what I really hate about that criticism? Marvel does that to all their characters. Yeah. Marvel doesn't take anything seriously. They, they laugh at the ridiculousness of their costumes and their whole existence. They've done that for every movie. Thor Love and Thunder didn't treat Thor like a joke. There was like substantive yeah, meat on the yeah. bones there. Of all the Marvel movies to like pick apart for like not taking their, their characterization seriously, that's one of the farthest ones yeah. from what would come to top of mind. Ridiculous to me. I know. It's just, and, and this show was just so disappointing. And like, I, I watched the last few episodes um, in a row because I had stopped watching this show for like weeks. And I'm like, well, let's just see how this goes. And I was like, wow, this is so much worse. <laughs> this was so much worse. <sighs> yeah. I just, I, and, there is a bit of a bitterness in there that there are people who otherwise I I would say have like rather good takes on a lot of different things with Marvel. I would even say so, but that defend, I mean, look, I'm not going to be a bitch here. If you like it, you like it, right? Like if you enjoyed the show, good for you. I mean, I'm, I don't want to take that away, Mm -hmm. but I'm like, I don't know. It, it, it really rubs me the wrong way. I want to say that, even this, which I feel so clearly is on the bottom end of quality-wise, what the MCU has ever given us, is like 
Well, you know, one of the ones that really pissed me off and that really kind of like made me think about this, I think it was in the early weeks where some person on Twitter was like, She-Hulk is what Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. should have been. <laughs> Remember you saying that? <laughs> and I'm not even going to tell you the things that crossed my mind about what I... I miss... Um... <sighs> Your rat tweets. <laughs> I mean, I could go all day, right? Like, for example, John Campia a few years back refused. I'm, I'm, look, this, I'm never going to let this go. Because just, just this week, um, which I guess is a nice transition into Andor. Just this week, they were talking about how um, Paraanalytics, which is just like this data firm, released information that Andor as a show is not nearly as in demand, not viewed. That's a different thing. Not nearly as in demand on social media as, as compared to the other Star Wars live action series. We'll get to that in a minute. But he treated this as a fact. The same thing as last year where he used that same source, Parrot Analytics, to show that WandaVision was the most in demand show in the world, period, when it was airing. Nobody disputed that because, of course, it made the, it made the most sense. Yeah. However... When it was a new thing, Parrot Analytics, back in 2018, it released this really earth-shattering study to their perspective that said that of all the Marvel shows, S.H.I.E.L.D. was the one that was most in demand across the world. And you know how that was treated? Not only was it not a story on the show, when one person asked about it to his face um, via Super Chat on his show, he was like, I don't believe it. <laughs> Even Dan Merle on Screen Junkies, I remember, I remember this so vividly years ago when this came up, that Parrot Analytics had said that S.H.I.E.L.D. was more popular than all the other shows. He was like, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> when it was S.H.I.E.L.D., you get, I don't know about that and I don't believe it. But when, when it's literally any other show, it's like, oh, yeah, I believe it. And people wonder why I'm so bitter. Because they treat that show differently. I'm not even, they literally treat that like it's like the, the specter or it's like it's the black sheep of the marvel family like literally and it never it never seems to end so and it's like and even even still even today i, I saw this hilarious tweet where it's like um that this picture of an exhausted person and it was like um they were just so tired of like these rumors that keep popping up of like, oh, S.H.I.E.L.D. characters are coming back or like, oh, the cast or, or, or Daisy Johnson. It's like, man, we've been played so many times. Like, why, why, why do people keep doing this? Um, and I got to be honest, I, I know I have said in the past that it would be, I think, ultimately a good thing that the actors in some way are brought back. Like if um, Chloe Bennett was brought back, it would be good for her career and good for the, for the old show. Cause more people would be drawn back to go watch it. But I'm just scared. Cause I have no faith in the brain trust anymore at Marvel studios. Mm -hmm. I have no faith in what they would do. So I'm just like scared of like what they would even dare do. <laughs> so, um, yeah. That was annoying in and of itself. But let's get to Andor. And look, yes, that pair of analytics, uh, and I believe it when it said that um, in demand-wise, it was nowhere near on the level of all the other shows, Boba Fett, Mandalorian, Obi-Wan. There's a very clear reason for that. Well, two very good, clear reasons for that. Cassie and Andor, 
is not a character on the level of notoriety or, uh, you know, just flat out, you know, belovedness, if that's even a term, as Boba Fett, as Mando, or as Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's just simple as that. Yeah. It's just the name, number one. Number two, Star Wars fans. As Star Wars, as a self-proclaimed Star Wars fan myself, I, and I want to be clear, I, I feel like I'm a little bit of a odd duck in that I don't hate the prequels. They're not good movies, but I appreciate what they do. Even though it's not necessarily a good film, I love Revenge of the Sith. Because that was like mm-hmm. my favorite Star Wars film as a kid. I love the original trilogy. They're timeless films. They're not perfect by any means from a filmmaking standpoint, but they're perfect in a certain sense and I love mm-hmm. them. Love them completely. Um, I adore the Clone Wars. I really do. And I love what it did for animation on television. I love what it did for the continuing expansion of the Star Wars universe. Even though it's not as good, I, I still really, really loved Star Wars Rebels. Even though it, I think there are some flaws in the show itself. Um, I really love The Force Awakens. Well, I shouldn't say love it. I really like it. But it's like, I really loved the experience of watching that Mm -hmm. movie. And I still really like that movie. And I love The Last Jedi. (laughs) I love The Last Jedi. And I mean, you've been seeing our our reactions lately. I mean, I'm also, I'm loving Andor. That's weird as a Star Wars fan, because usually there's not a, there's not a a Venn diagram. There's not a a lot of overlap for Star Wars fans to enjoy all those things. Because I also don't, I, I don't particularly care for Rogue One. And I hate The Mandalorian. I hate The Mandalorian, and I hate how people think that show is good. I don't think it is at all, literally, literally. And I also hate what it's done to some of my favorite characters, namely, of course, Ahsoka. So here's the thing. Star Wars fans, this is going to come across as insulting. And I hope it does, because it should be. <laughs> um, by and large, Star Wars fans only care about the further exploration of the mythos, of the mythology, of the lore, of the characters they already know. And I feel like Dave Filoni... I, I think you're giving them too much credit. I think they only care about what they know. <laughs> and they don't want to expand from there. <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> I mean, that's true, right? Um, but you know what it, what it is, though? I, I have a sneaking suspicion. I don't think it's the character that's that, that it's keeping a lot of them from loving it. Like, here's the thing. They love Rogue One. They think Rogue One's the best Star Wars movie. And so, a character from Rogue One getting a show, I remember a lot of them were excited for it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't because I knew. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was like, whatever. I honestly don't remember what he did in Rogue One. I don't remember. I, the movie I don't all remember that well. this movie. To be fair, yeah, that, that's 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 the thing. But I, I'll tell you this though: I don't think we would we would be talking about this show not being anywhere near in demand mm-hmm. if John Favreau had directed and written the series. I feel like if John Favreau had written and directed the show, people would be like all those Star Wars fans who are not like necessarily excited or tuned in right now. They would be here. Mm-hmm. Why? Because of what we said last week. 
it would be an endless parade of cameos. Mm-hmm. It would be, and it wouldn't be interesting. Cassian would just be a good guy. We would start the show with Cassian already having gone through his arc. Mm-hmm. That's where we would start. And he wouldn't be like being shady the way that he's being on the show. And the show fundamentally would have nothing of interest to say. Yeah. That's what, and, and that's none of the interesting the, character things mm-hmm. that seem so small but end up being huge. Would not be happening. We would have seen Hera. We would have seen Sabine. We would have seen Ahsoka. We would have seen Vader. We would have seen Tarkin. We would have seen Krennic. We would have seen K2S. We would have seen Emperor Palpatine. There are so many characters we already would have seen. R2-D2, C-3PO, Bail Organa, Leia Organa, Luke maybe, even though it doesn't make any sense. Obi-Wan, what the fuck not? He was in the show recently. We would be seeing everybody right now. And I feel like if that was the show that existed right now, you bet your ass they would be tuning in. And they would be like, you know, sucking at the teat for it every single week as they did for Mandalorian and Boba. But what does that suggest? They only care about cameos. They only care about the characters they know. And I think even more sadly, I think a lot of them have been so far disconnected with what Star Wars was supposed to be in the first place. We can throw this clip all day long of George Lucas and James Cameron talking about all of the political revolutions and or institutions that existed in the 1960s that led to George creating Star Wars. It's in the title Wars. People don't want to be reminded that Star Wars has always been political. Because some people, even though they're not conservative or don't swing that way, some people have unfortunately been hijacked into this like really brain-dead argument that movies and art cannot preach politics. Really, at the end of the day, conservatives don't care about that. They don't like politics that it's, that's opposed to what they believe being preached to them. That's what it is. Because it implies they're on the wrong side of history which they've always have been, which they always are. Take this election coming up. Republicans will win elections all over the country, even though, because amazingly, the American people trust them more in economic issues. Even though when they come into office, they're not going to address economic issues. They're going to go right away to going after uteruses. (laughs) That's their number one priority. And also usurping, talk about like, you know, like what happened in um, House of the Dragon this week, which we'll get into. Mm They're not going to be usurping a throne. They'll be usurping the entire demo- yeah. democracy. That's what they're about. But people in this country are so brain dead. Also, at the same time, one political party is so checked out. That's what's going to happen. So, but that's the thing. It's like the show that we're seeing in Andor speaks to ultimately the core themes to what Star Wars well, part of Star Wars, because I think for some people you could say that it's removed the fantasy element from it, which to me and to a lot of people, I find that refreshing because so much of Star Wars has been obsessed exclusively with the fantasy element of it, with the Jedi, with the Sith and all of that stuff. But which is here fun. We, like, yeah, I, I, yeah, there's more to it. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And this show constantly um, is a reminder of the points of view, the perspectives that we have been missing in almost all of the media. I think the closest that came to touching what Andor, you know, showcases is Star Wars The Clone Wars. They had a lot of episodes that spoke to the inherent political issues that existed in the galaxy in the era leading up to the Empire. Um, to their credit, they did have episodes where it was mostly just politics. Um, but here in Andor, it's the very best they've come to it. Because I'm just going to say this right now. This episode, last episode, I want to say, was the most exciting and quality-wise, the best hour of live-action television Star Wars has had. And I know I'm going to, even though people have praised, I, I think this episode topped it. I loved this episode. And yes, it was an episode where people were just talking and walking in rooms. And I don't care that some of the most thrilling shit you will see on television. This was not only peak Star Wars television, this was peak television. Every conversation in this episode, every character interaction progressed the story forward and meant so much, carried so much weight, and the actors delivered it with so much power, with so much emotion. I was just really blown away with it. And I think Houston Colley uh, put this best today when I saw his tweet. Just watch the new Andor. My lord, on a purely human level, this is the best Star Wars. There are five different tense conversations in this episode that are more thrilling than any action. That scene with Fiona Shaw was so arresting. It's human. It's gripping. It's political. It's perfect. Peter himself, um, I, I talked with him recently, and he called the episode perfect. Wow. To be fair, I haven't watched it, but I... You haven't I watched have, Oh, my God. You I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. I assumed you did. The conversations... Look, I, I, I want to start off with Genevieve O'Reilly, who plays Mon Mothma. Wow. There was a... She basically has two key conversations in this episode. One with Stellan Skarsgård. Basically, her compatriot in this like um, endeavor to launch the rebellion. And what basically happens in this episode is fascism is beginning to even more um, unrestrain themselves. Because it, it is interesting, right? Like we're like 15 years into this empire, but there's still an imperial senate. There's still the facade that there's some kind of like justice system and that this is not all being ran by one guy at the top. Because it's convenient for them to think that people have the illusion of democracy, even though it's not at all democracy. Which is an element of Star Wars that has so rarely been explored. And I'm happy that um, we're doing that here in this show. But those two characters have a particularly like revealing exchange in, in the, as a response to what happened last week where you know at Ferrix and the money that was stolen – and she's like, she wasn't aware this was happening. And she goes to him like, please tell me this wasn't you. And it's like, not that she's not happy this didn't happen because ultimately that's her goal. Her, She's coming at it from the point of view that we, this is going to cause so much suffering. And I had, I guess like she just wasn't prepared for this to happen now, now. Mm -hmm. And he was like, no, this is happening now. 
This is the beginning of the rebellion. I told you this is what it was going to look like. And yes, this is going to cause people's lives to be worse, but that's what needs to happen. We forced their hand. They're going to buckle down and that's going to give us the advantage. And you know this. And she's like, she's afraid. Of course she's afraid. She trusts nobody. But she's also just like, she knows all too well the suffering, the lives, frankly, that Mm -hmm. this is going to cost. And so the next conversation she has is uh, she has this childhood friend from her home planet of Chandrila um, that's visiting. And they finally have that, like, I guess that cocktail party that her husband made her have. And she basically approaches him. The dialogue here. Oh, my God. The dialogue is so impeccably written. And she's trying to, like, she's trying to gauge whether or not she can trust him to bring him in on this Mm because she needs help. She needs money. And he can offer that for her. And she never flat out says to him what she's doing. But she's just, like, trying to, like, ask if she – if he – if she can rely on him. And one of the best lines – she had two amazing lines where she's like, I've learned from Palpatine. Where it's like, I'll show you the stone in in one hand and you'll miss the knife in my other hand. That was a particular line that she had. Remember, she spent close time with him even in, yeah. before the yeah. as the Clone Wars were happening. So she knows the duplicitous nature of this man, um, that he was never sincere from the very beginning. She mm-hmm. all too well knows what that's like from the political side of things. And then she also says, the Mon Mothman that everybody thinks they know, it's all a facade. They don't really know what I'm doing here. So, I know that, that doesn't do justice to how she yeah. delivered it, Genevieve O'Reilly, but it was so good, so good here. We also see moving pieces with um, the Imperial side of things because um, we actually get a cameo. I don't know if you remember this character, um, Yaloran. Yaloran was the admiral that spent a lot of time with Ahsoka and Anakin in the first season of the Clone Wars. And he also had um, one episode in Rebels, I believe. And then he also, you see him very quickly in episode four, A New Hope, where Tarkin and Vader had that meeting in the Death Star. He's actually there. In that in that place, but he's the leader of the ISB, the Security Bureau, and he's actually there in the episode. And I love how he's not treated with like, you know, pomp and circumstance. He's just there, and he's basically telling them like, we're gonna crack down, and there's gonna be hell to pay. And the female Imperial, I believe her name is Dedra, uh, she's like, this is not good. This completely plays into the rebellion's hand. All, all this is going to do is help their ability. She's smart enough to know this is not going to play well in the end. All the while, she uses finally this new security level, clearance level, to get the information she's been asking for the entire time. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the other guy, like, finds that out and, like, brings that up in front of the whole, like, round table. And the exchange, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but the exchange that happens is, like, <laughs> delicious. Delicious. Like, the conversations that happen in this episode honestly are on the level of House of the Dragon. They're that amazing, I amazing love these stuff. Types of shows. It's, right? It's I, so, I mean, right, yeah. We I just sent you a video on the crown. Oh, yes. oh my god. <laughs> Wait, I forgot the crown season five trailer yeah. dropped this week. Didn't that look incredible? Oh my god. I can't <sighs> wait to get back into that show. I love it so much. Um, but with here, we also see Cassian. Um, so I guess like after the decision he made last week, he actually goes back for a reason. 
he goes back to Marva, his, I guess, adopted mother. And the money that he was able to get, like, basically acquire, he wants to help her get out of that, like, place. You know, <laughs> yeah, that kind of. So there were actually, again, this is this this show is so good because like there's that duality to Cassie and Andor. There's a dark side and a light side there. Like we and literally meet like, him and he kills somebody like two seconds in. Mm-hmm, exactly, and here it's like he's trying to like get her out of it. Only the twist. I don't want to ruin it for you, but there's a twist here <laughs> where she's like, she refuses ultimately, and the reason for why she refuses to go is ultimately why the rebellion exists and is so empowering. And then also, so it cuts so deeply where she's like, and the, that actor was so amazing where she, she delivered this line where she's like, well, well he, he doesn't want to let leave her behind because he says he'll never find peace. And then she's like, that's just love. And we can't do anything about that. Can we? Like she's, um, that's her response. Settling. She's settling. Everything that's going on. She's settled, but she's 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 not like giving. Up. She's not giving. Yeah, in. no, no. But the but she's she, like she, oh she, like things she has a be purpose. Worse. She feels she has a purpose to be there. Okay. That's different than than what Cassian wants to do. Cassian wants no part of this rebellion. Mm-hmm. He wants to flee. She does not. She sees more purpose in staying than leaving with him. Mm. And so. And you'll see that when you see the episode, but oh my gosh. Mm. And then it ends with Cassian. He gets bit in the ass pretty big. The kind of stuff that will like make him realize there's no escaping the empire. There's no escaping fascism. No matter how far you run, shit like that. And the way that it happens, oh my God, is such bullshit. I this is my favorite episode of the show, my favorite episode of the show, and I uh, I love it so much. So yeah, there's that, and I can't wait. This I love this show so much. I can't. I, I'm happy that we have twelve episodes to live in it. You know, <laughs> not just like it's here and it's gone. Yeah. But yeah, that was Andor. We saved the best for last. We have, of course. House of the Dragon, Episode 9. I'll go with initial reactions first, and then we can go do the recap as you see fit, Alexis. So mm-hmm. I'll go ahead and leave that in your hands. Wow. <laughs> Just wow. I This episode, I would say, um, my, initial ta- my initial takeaways. Olivia Cook is pretty phenomenal in this role as Alicent. And I love how she's just not a carbon copy of of a Cersei or some kind of like loathsome person. Like there are, she actually has values and she has principles and there are lines she refuses to cross because she knows better. Now you can make the argument that that's going to cost her personally in the end, but immediately there are... There is a reservation to not cast out Alicent for what she's doing as opposed to any of the other people in that room. And when a certain climactic moment happens in this episode, I understand the reluctance on Rhaenys's part to not do what many 
have been screaming at her and were certainly screaming on their television sets <laughs> to do. I also love what this episode did for Rainis. And in that moment, I just mentioned it finally gave her the semblancy of agency because so much of this season, things just happened to her. And she finally was just like, she. there was a moment where she was on top of the world. You don't mess with me. And nobody could touch her. Yeah. You don't know. Nobody can mess with me. Basically, that's what happens. And, and I also appreciate her for sticking her guns. And I feel like one of my favorite exchanges in this episode was with her, with Rhaenys and with Alicent. Um, and those two are very interesting and fascinating characters. Um, yeah, there's a lot more to say. Um, but we'll get to it when we get to it. You, Alexis? I mean... I feel like a broken record at this point. I love this show so much. I love this episode. I will say, um, I think the height of this season has been the last episode. Yes. Mm -hmm. That coming from that, it was just a bit like... Yes. You know? Um, I don't... I agree with you completely. I don't think... Whereas last week was the clear high point of the series mm-hmm. and we're like, we were saying everything and everything was building. This one was not on that level. Yeah. But like how I was saying with Mike Flanagan stuff, yes. it was still amazing in its own oh, way. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Hardly any complaints. Oh, yeah. No. It was a perfect, yeah. almost perfect execution of an episode of TV. Yes. Um. There was just, there was a, so much that, I mean, in every episode, there's so much that happens. Um, Shall we, I, I, I don't know if you want to go through this in order, but there are some smaller things we can get out of the way with now, if you want, okay. like, that happened in the background. So, like, yes. the um, the white worm, is that what she calls herself? Yes. So, she basically here makes somewhat of an alliance with Otto Hightower, by the way, spoilers, if you didn't already know, but uh, to basically, like, she has... Aegon, mm-hmm. and she exchanges him through uh, some kind of promise where he will eliminate the really what are dog fights, but we're basically with kids. By the way, that to me was some of the most disturbing shit I've ever seen in Game of Thrones. And let me tell you something: we've seen a we've lot of disturbing lot of shit, shit on the, in this God universe. Damn. But that that took it to a whole new level where I was like, I was visibly uncomfortable watching that. Yeah, I I just, I just found out like literally before we started recording, I found out that this is something that happens in the show and the books I'm, I'm sorry um but it, it's it's a little bit more disturbing in the book and I'm, I'm very glad that they didn't go that far they didn't need to but we got the point <laughs> so anyway uh we see her network of spies they've kind of been in the background throughout uh the season we mentioned them earlier when Otto found out that you know, Damon and uh, Rhaenyra, Rhaenyra had been in a whorehouse, basically, which ultimately led to him being fired um, from Hand of the King. Now here, she uses a bit of leverage to get what she wants. However, through Laris, who is in the background and apparently, and I don't know how much more there is to say with Laris, and I should we should just address it now because it's just that one scene, right? Where and we kind of knew already, like she, he and her, and uh, the queen, uh, Alicent, 
had been having some sort of friendship mm-hmm. and alliance, shall we say, throughout all the years uh, to kind of get what she wants. And it seems like there was some, actually something more concrete to that agreement where she basically started an OnlyFans. Uh, where she, <laughs> I love that joke because everybody like was like, seeing it. like the she basically uh, only Laris, <laughs> only Laris, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> so Laris basically like gives her all the information for a price where like she shows him her feet and he jacks off in front of her. That was disgusting, obviously, to see and really gross, um, to see and everything. But evidently, it was. He, you guys yeah. can do whatever you want, kind of whatever kink you want. You know, as long as you're not hurting anybody and as long as it's consensual. Right. Whatever. But you could see how uncomfortable she was. Yeah. You know, that's... That's, that's what made it gross, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think it would play differently if she was into it. Yes. That would be a different situation. Also, Although, if she was, that would not be Allison's character. So that's a bit of a disconnect there yeah. if that were to happen. But the point is, he told, Laris told Allison... About, you know, the, the network of spies. And then toward the end of the episode, the place that she operates out of is basically on fire. So the immediate questions I have is, is she really dead? Is she gone? And are those spies yeah. gone? Mm, okay. I did now, have you obviously a know questions. More. Um uh-huh. I know that the white worm is not somebody that you mess with. Um, she is very much in the level of Littlefinger and Varys, but even more intense. Um, I think she has a little bit more of a concrete reason as to why she does things, whereas Varys and Littlefinger are were far more selfish and... Varys well, is, is a little different. Yeah. Um, but she, she, yeah, like the things that she wants and the things that she works for, like, you don't mess with that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they are gone, I believe, but mm-hmm. it's going to bite them in the ass, I think, later on. <laughs> right. Um, I don't think all of them are gone, but a good. I, I don't think. I mean, clearly they're they're not. Yeah. There's always going to be a network of spies. Yeah. I mean, how else did Varys <laughs> and, and Littlefinger yeah. get around? But I I do find it interesting because something that we see with Allison's character and the Greens in general is this sense of like, uh, or just the way that they think them think of themselves as like superior. When right. everything that they do contradicts what they say. Um, everything. Every action they make. Yes. You talked about the Laris scene. Yes. But when, as we saw in earlier episodes, almost every episode, um, she very much judges Rhaenyra for the things that she's done. Including her relationship with Damon. And Harwin. Yes. And... Um, or Sir, also Sir Kristen, yeah. Yeah. But look at what she's doing. <laughs> um, and then Well, you I mean, see for Otto. one, she employed uh, Sir Kristen, who is not a repeated murderer. Yes. 
How many people does he have to kill before people were like, you know what? This guy's kind of fucking crazy. Let's get rid of him. This, but like no, he, let's make, let's this make, is, this is, listen, I think that the whole um, Joffrey thing was obviously not good and bad, but he killed somebody from the Great Council. Like, like a very important figure. Yes. Nothing like And that. also threatened the Lord Commander in yes. that same sequence. Because the Lord yes. Commander rightfully was like, that's yeah. no, that that that's strike I don't know how many strikes that is, but that's like you you don't yeah. do that. Something that I think I don't know if it's gonna happen. I just think it would be really interesting to see. Um, if it is what I'm thinking. Because I believe that Kristen does not know about Laris, as we saw like two episodes ago. Where mm-hmm. he was like kind of jealous of Laris staring at Alicent that you he, he oh, even Oh no, like, no, he doesn't know. If if Cole knew yeah. what was going on, I don't think Laris would be breathing. Right yeah. Now. So I think Alicent not doing any I'm sorry, not doing anything to Kristen for the things that he's done mm-hmm. is is gonna get back to her. Like I feel like because we, you, you're setting up this person mm-hmm. to think that he can do whatever he wants. Like, his most, like, bad impulse, he's done it already. Cole is and has been an unhinged person. And he gets rewarded for it. Yes. And so, and- when he finds out what you've been mm-hmm. up to... And even in this episode, you know, they have that scene where she's basically like, if you feel anything for me, go find my kid um, and bring him back to me. You can only control something, somebody like that for yes, so long. Uh-huh. That's, the, that's the, the the thing that makes me worry. It's like, I don't think she realizes, like, you can't control mm-hmm. him, especially when he finds out this, that's going to cause him to go berserk. Yeah. Someone will die. Yeah. And then it's also like connects to that conversation that she has with Rainice, where she says like, we may not be at the top. I mean, not obviously not in these words, but like we may not be at the top, but we can control the people who are behind mm-hmm. the scenes. And I think that in her mind, she is doing this to Kristen. Uh, but then Rainice tells her, like you basically like you may think you are doing these things but ultimately like you are still being controlled by all of these men Mm-hmm. because that's ultimately what's happening it's like i think Renice calls it out perfectly because allison kind of realizes it almost immediately at the beginning of the episode where she's like and we should we should just be clear about this because it's it, it's kind of hilarious too how it starts where they're in the small council meeting they announce the king is dead. Otto says what uh, Allison told him. And then the Lannister guy was like, well, phew, now we can continue with our plans mm-hmm. as we thought. We, and then mm-hmm. Otto just sits down and immediately was like, yes, now we know that we know that Damon's, uh, there's still two guards that are loyal to Damon. We need to replace them first. And Allison's like, what the fuck are you people mm-hmm. talking about? Mm-hmm. Like, because she's she like, she had no clue. Oh, you didn't know. Then I did not know. She didn't. She didn't know. Mm-hmm. I thought she was in. It seemed she was yeah. in on this from the beginning, but she didn't know. No, she had no clue. And she's so disgusted by that. And then she and she, before the she cuts them off because they were gonna they would keep going. And she's like, "What do you plan to do with Rhaenyra? 
Yeah. And just silence. And then Otto is like, well, the the former heir, as he puts it, cannot al- be allowed to continue to be free. And then she's like, well, where do you think this is going to go? She's never going to bend the knee. And so you mean to kill her? And Otto is like, well, this is what needs to happen. And she's like, the king would not want the murder of his own daughter. Mm-hmm. And so I'm happy that she was there to voice that. Like she was ironically of because she herself is so guilty of perpetuating a lot of the bullshit this season. But for her of all people mm-hmm. in that room to be the voice of reason suddenly. But it also just reveals how full of shit Otto was the entire time. Yeah. And even just the smugness of his face when the coronation happens, all he wanted was his grandson all to be on the iron tower. That's all he wants. Yeah. And he played you, girl. And she even realized yeah. it because like, she was the one that said, if you don't act on this, Rhaenyra will kill your children. And of course, any mother will react to that in the most extreme way possible. But it's like, that was never... We know Rhaenyra would never have done that. She would never have done that. Otto would. Yeah. And Otto always intended to kill Rhaenyra. She always intended to kill Damon. And it makes he you realize... Damon. Okay, of course he does. But it makes you realize... Even though, strategically and politically, it was the wrong decision for Rhaenyra to get away from King's Landing, in hindsight, if she had remained, would that not have made it easier for Otto to just eliminate them on the spot? Mm-hmm. Like, just kill them in their rooms? Yeah. Because, like, at the Red Keep, uh, Rhaenyra has very little support, as we saw in this episode. Well, we saw in the last episode. Yeah. So, it's a lose-lose situation for her to have either stayed or to have left. Um, she may have just saved her own life yeah. by leaving. Like, she was right. There was, she had no friends there. Yeah. And once the king died, those vultures, fuck. <laughs> they just, they sprang into action. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, and I I feel like someone pointed this out. They really should, for all the planning they did, they should have come up with a better, like, lie or reason for, like, to supplant Rhaenyra with Aegon. Like, to say that, I know in the moment it sounds convenient enough to where it's like, oh, yeah, he changed his mind at the last moment. Well, and the only th- person the who thing, was there to though. see it like, was it, his it wife. It wasn't planned. Like, um, they were just going to do it. like, truly believes this. Yes. That this is what he wanted, even though literally that day he, you know, basically uh, – <laughs> fast-tracked his uh, death <laughs> by standing up for Rhaenyra and her kids and her legitimacy Lord to Beasley? the throne. But, you know, whatever. Uh, she just decided to just forget about all that. <laughs> um, but she she truly believes this. And then when she went to Otto with this uh, news, he was immediately like, oh, yes, we're, we're on the same page now. But truly... They never were because Otto no. just wants power. And Alicent, I don't think that she wants power. I, like, I, it's hard to kind of understand her motives because... I Yeah, I, I agree with you. But I, I, I do think, like, if we look at who Alicent 
has been and who she has been raised to be. I feel like because she 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 has religion and she does believe in the sanctity of the royal line. Mm-hmm. And from her perspective, her having children by the king means that the gods have ruled that her children are divine in a way, not divine, but like they're they're the royal family, mm-hmm. obviously, and that there there is a right and a wrong. And she feels, I think, what she misses is a lot of people in her life do not operate by that code of conduct mm-hmm. do not operate by a right or a wrong like she does yeah. she like she feels like she tries to do they're they're in it for themselves and they're in it for power and i think she misses that yeah yeah she and she, she really she, she still, really misjudged everybody around her yeah like she's still it's so funny because i think that she is like the most hypocritical person in the show. Yes. Um, but she still has this like innocence to her where like she believes everybody's gonna bring out the best in themselves. Uh-huh. Like everybody's their intent is to do good when right. in reality, like it's not like that. And even no. with herself. Yes. You know? Um, I don't know. It's it's she can't see a hypocrisy. Yes, it seems like yes. even when she does, she just like turns a blind eye. Yeah, you know, it happens a lot. Yeah, I mean, even uh, even her like between last episode and this episode, we see her calling Aegon like he's like the scum of the earth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, you're no son of mine. Yeah, but we cut to this episode, and she is still like, "You're gonna be king." One wonders how this episode would have played out if she wasn't around to hear what she heard right before he passed away. Mm-hmm. Like, how would she respond yeah. to Everything. this if she didn't believe that Viserys wanted Aegon to be on the throne? Especially considering the night before and the kind of mini reconcile shall we say between her and Rhaenyra mm-hmm. but that's not the 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 hand that we've been played mm-hmm. it seems like and it also is like highly like you would think this the, a lot of the actions that Otto himself and what happened in the small council was really careless to even allow happen because they basically like eliminated people who were threats to them but I'm sure some of those people belong to houses yeah. that would not be happy to hear their people were their leaders or representatives were like incarcerated or executed. That's not good. Um, like at all. Now, ultimately like Alicent's, I, I will give Alicent credit where like she, she herself is somewhat, even though she does not operate under the same like code of conduct that everybody else does, she does know, some of the right buttons to push you. Like her exchange with Renice mm-hmm. was rather interesting. Um, where she's like, look, if it's Driftmark you want, mm-hmm. you'll have it. If your granddaughters will succeed you, fine, whatever. And I feel what I what I do feel is sincere. Alicent really wants to avoid Rhaenyra. Yeah. Well, she wants to avoid a war, but she wants to avoid Rhaenyra dying yeah. or being killed because of this. Like she wants to 
she wants to show her father that they can do this in a way that does not require murder. Yeah. And that line that she tells him, like, reluctance to murder is not a weakness. Yeah. Like, she's trying to really go above and beyond to avoid all of that. And one of the ways she sees that is to bring Rhaenys over to her Mm -hmm. side. Doesn't obviously hurt that she has a dragon that they can barter with to use against, obviously, you know, Mm -hmm. Daemon and Rhaenyra. But if Rhaenys had sided with Alicent, that would have made Rhaenyra's challenge even that more complicated. Yeah. But you know what was really interesting about that exchange, um, where Al- um, Renice is basically saying to Alicent, um, "Have you never imagined yourself on the Iron Throne?" And I got to be honest with you, I generally think all- she hasn't. No, of all the people who, Renice, notwithstanding, of all the people who are in King's Landing, she should be, and she basically was already queen, right? Yeah. Like uh-huh. for all intents and purposes, but. She seems to be kind-hearted, even misguided as she has been for many years, and easily manipulated as she clearly found herself to be revealed. Is still the best option. Consider I mean, maybe um, what's her name? Um, what's her daughter's name? Uh, Helena. Yeah, maybe Helena. But the rest of them are really pretty loathsome individuals. Um, Especially when you like when that is like contrasted with what um humongous mistake of an option Aegon is <laughs> like this whole episode just throws more and more at you like he is just he doesn't even want no. to be king and everything he does is just like and it, and it's it, and it's. Yeah. It's so, like, funny, because when you think about Game of Thrones, the people who did not want the Iron Throne are the people who should they're have good people. been in the Iron Throne. They're and good, then yeah. here... And they're good people, and he's not a good person. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, 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 like, interesting... Because But they also know that too in the episode, right? Like everybody even talks about like Aegon should not be king. Yeah, yeah. The Kingsguard or not the Some Kingsguard. of the Kingsguard, um, yeah, yeah, they, they yeah. talk about them. The even Eric Aemond. and Arc. Yes. Um Eric and Arc. Even Aemond. <laughs> um was like But specifically the twins, you know, mm-hmm. they're discussing as they're looking for Aegon, like, this guy should not be uh, heading up on the Iron Throne. Like, it's, I don't know. It's, I'm very interested to see who's going to You happen. know what's also kind of interesting is, I, it seems to me, this whole idea that in the story of the show happened 20 years ago now that um, Rhaenyra was proclaimed to be the heir to Viserys. The whole resistance from Otto, or so he says, was that the lords of the land would never uh, accept a female on the Iron Throne. And I feel like low-key, while not being straight up in our faces, the show has kind of like slowly chipped away at that being a reasonable thing to believe in, considering that, well, Alicent and everybody seemed to have already knew this, that was basically calling the shots, 
you know, acting in the king's place. But then also, some of those houses were not swayed by fear uh, in, in the throne room and kept their oath. Mm-hmm. And it kind of made you think, no, I think most people would be okay with Rhaenyra being the queen. Yeah. It's just a bunch of people who want to usurp power for themselves. It's it's the that, the it's the whole, because she's a woman, like, we literally see a contrast between, I mean, obviously, Aegon is a despicable human being, um, but we, we see, you know, in this episode, he ran away in his little tunnels uh, mm-hmm. to go to, to go into town and do his business. In the one of the last episodes with Rhaenyra in the Red Keep, we see her doing the exact same thing. She has bastards, he has bastards, but look who's gonna be on the Iron Throne. Yeah. So it's not a question of if she has what it takes or if she should be the one to do it. It's just that she is a woman, so she shouldn't be. Basically. Yeah. Um, the sequence where um, Renice is whisked away. I don't know if it's Eric or Arik. Um, I don't. One of the twins. You can't really tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of the twins. Tries to whisk her away to safety, but then they get separated because the crowd is being corralled to go into the dragon pit for the coronation. And I gotta say, this is actually a pretty smart calculation on Allison's part, which is if the people of King's Landing are there to see the coronation itself, it would be that much harder for Rhaenyra to come in and challenge the claim. So I think for like the the pure theatrics of uh, of politics, that was a well played move. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, he, yeah, th- there's far more to that scene. I mean, I don't know if you realize, but he's literally first of all, his name is Aegon. <laughs> Yeah. Um. He's wearing Aegon's crown. Yep. Uh. Has his sword. Mm-hmm. Um. Looks like a Targaryen. Yep. And also, they're at the whatever their church is called. Like that's a huge thing for the mm-hmm. people. You know. Like it, it's mm-hmm. it's it was very important for Allison and very well thought out for Allison to have done this. It was just. Very, very well-played move by Allison to have set it up like this. Yes, it was. Um, however, even she couldn't have accounted for <laughs> uh, a party crasher, shall we say. Mm-hmm. One of the things that just made me laugh about um, when... when So basically, what's her name? Renice was there and she was able to get down to the dragon pit and she gets her dragon and then she busts out. And it makes a whole show of it. Between this and um, the ex- the the bombing, if you will, of the Sept of Baelor back in Game of Thrones, man, it really sucks to be a peasant in, mm-hmm. in, in this universe. Because these people were just like, they were forced against their will to be there. Mm-hmm. And even though I shouldn't laugh, the, w- the way they, they some of these people just die... 
because they bust the, the floor caves in clearly because the dragon busts out. I think we even see certain people just flying across. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and it's just like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know why I found that funny. Um, but what we see, man, it, it, it was the equivalent of like you know, clutching somebody's balls basically, right? Yeah. And putting like and putting <laughs> the, and, and like squeezing them because what happened is. With her dragon, she's right there, and all of those bastards are on that dais. And if she had just said fucking Dracarys, the war would be over then and there. The problem is, so would the series. <laughs> There'd be nothing left to do if that was the case. And I feel otherwise, she would be very inclined to burn all of them. But I think it's the moment where Allison steps forward. Mm-hmm. And I think she hesitates because I think like, and I think she even said herself in the earlier scene where she like really um, misunderstood you, Allison Hightower, or whatever, I think whatever she said. And I think she sees a little bit of herself maybe in Allison. Like she sees maybe a bit more to it where she doesn't deserve this fate. I don't know what, but she also was like, you know, I don't want any part of this. I'm getting the fuck out of here. (laughs) Although, of course, we know she's going to go immediately over to Rhaenyra because she obviously is owed that. But, um, yeah, what a fucking moment. What a fucking episode. I I saw it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. It, like I, This is why I think that this episode was a little bit... I don't want to say, though, I think some people ha- are very valid to feel that Maybe there wasn't a good enough reason at all for her to not burn them. Um, I think that the writing was a little bit muddled here. Maybe I could could Mm -hmm. be wrong. Maybe they'll prove me wrong. Um, Because... I think that's fair. Huh? No, I I think that's very fair. Um, Because in that conversation that uh, Renice and Allison had, like, the way that I saw that was... Alicent trying her best at trying mm-hmm. to manipulate Rainice because we see in the last episode um where Rhaenyra like basically goes begging for her or to her to like help her out um and I think with uh Rainice ultimately is that she has more of a connection blood-wise with mm. Rhaenyra than with Alicent. And right. I think that she knew that Alicent knows this. And I think that Alicent is starting to realize the importance of being a Targaryen and having that blood and that name and those dragons. Right. Um, and... I think that Rhaenys knew what Alicent was doing the whole time. And I think that that's why she says the whole, I underestimated you. Because mm. she sees that. That she's right. trying to use her um, for wh- who she is and who she is within this family. Um, and I think that that moment where we see her in with her dragon and in front of Alicent, I think that that was... Uh, Rainice showing Alicent, um, this is what it means to be a Targaryen. This is the power that we hold, and you will never understand that. 
because you mm-hmm. are not. <laughs> um, and also, it's kind of her, I think, her, t- uh, like, showing Allison, like, this is the chaos that you're going to bring if yeah. you go down this path. Because, yeah, uh, like, literally everything went to shit. And we even see, like, Otto, like, yelling, like, to open the doors. And they're, like, nobody's listening to him. Because he thinks that he has all this power and control, but he does not. No. Um, That was fun watching him, like, yeah. panic. <laughs> and why weren't they opening the doors? Why, why were they even closing the doors why for? Why were they closing the doors? What was the doors? point? Yeah. I was so confused. Like, yeah. why, why, why is that your reaction? Yeah. <laughs> like, if I was Otto, I'd be like... Who the fuck were those guards? Fire them. <laughs> so, it, yeah. And then I do think that ultimately, like, she, she sees her protecting her kids and protecting Aegon. And I think that she does feel this, like, that her instinct kicked in and Renice like, saw that. And I think that that's why she left. But it's a little weird the way that yes. it was played out. I think it is very fair if you saw that scene and it didn't immediately click uh-huh. into you why she just left them yeah. alive. And I, it, it's even, I would say, even more critically analyzed when you think, well, maybe it's because the show needed her to leave them alive. Yeah. That's, Yeah. Well, we have one more to go. Oh, after we till Monday. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Possibly Tuesday. <laughs> How are you gonna do? This is the finale. I know. How are we gonna? I know. I, I mean, you're not gonna avoid even try to avoid spoilers, are you? I am. You gonna try? Yeah. <laughs> Will you succeed though? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm oh. so excited to see it, but I'm also very sad. Because it's the last one. Because it's the last one. We won't get one for another two years. <sighs> it's such a long time. That's too long. Like, I'm sorry. I miss the days when, like, shows would be out every year. You know? I, I don't... Why? Because they hate us. Damn it. But even I think that like no matter what happens in this finale, which I'm so excited for. I don't know if you saw the the Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god, yeah. I can't wait. Um It's been so good. It's been mm-hmm. so so good. Like I like I said in the beginning, I feel like I can't say enough good things about this show. Because every episode just kept beating one another. It's so good. I I agree completely with that. And for me, anyway, for my money, what an incredible year for television. Between this, I mean, for me, anyway, I know you haven't seen some of these, but between this and Andor and Stranger Things and uh, Peacemaker, oh, goodness me. Um, And there was another one. I don't know why I can't remember at the moment, but there was just... So many amazing works that have come out this year. Um, and we still got two months left of the year to go. 
and so much more content mm -hmm. for us to see. So much more that it's impossible to see it all, but we will do our best. Um, so stay tuned here on Red Spotlight for more of this wonderful content and all the world of movies and more. Every single Sunday, wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it be on Apple, Spotify, anywhere else. Um, thank you, Alexis, for being here. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.